Welcome to Sloppy Spoilers with your host, DT2. What's up, y'all? DT2 Comics Chat here. Welcome to another episode of Sloppy Spoilers. On this episode, we're going to be talking about my favorite movie of all time, uh, one of the biggest sci-fi classics in history, the follow-up to what we talked about last week, Aliens, written and directed by James Cameron. Okay, so can't wait to dive in. Uh, this movie not only works on so many levels, but there are parallels to what's going on today on a variety of levels that we're going to talk about. Okay. So let me welcome my co-host. Welcome to the show, David Nemesis Howard. Hey, what's going on? Yeah, I am with you. I love this movie. Uh, one of my favorites and also contains some of my favorite characters of all time. So absolutely love this movie. Can't wait to talk about it. And almost every line is quotable. Oh, absolutely. Welcome to the show, Steve. Shade Wing Sellers. What's up, Steve? Hey, uh, glad to be here. Uh, it's a bug hunt, but it's a good bug hunt. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I saw this like a few years ago, and I'm like, yeah, this one quickly like grew uh, into one of my all-time favorites as well. So I'm glad, I'm glad to get uh, around to discussing this. And welcome to Jeff, Dr. Fate, Bracey. What's up, Bracey? Hey, man. Like, uh... This is, as everybody said, it's a great film. It's a classic film. Uh, and even though Alien overall is uh, one of my favorite pictures, uh, the genius of this film is that uh, that it goes in a different direction while still maintaining a lot of the elements of the first film. didn't have to be a pure horror. It was brilliant to make it a war action horror film. Good up on Cameron. Now, that's an excellent point and a pivotal point, and we're going to talk about that later on because that's kind of the heart and the crux of this movie. And then there's also been some pushback against that very idea over the years. So I can't wait to dive into that. So let's start off at the top. We're gonna to start with general impressions. I'll start with mine and then I'll throw it out to my co-host. Um, again, you will see my bias as we talk because this is my favorite movie of all time. And the reason it's my favorite movie of all time is because it's blessed near perfect. It's not perfect because we're going to nitpick like we always do, but it's as close to perfect uh, as you might want to get. Also, it's the last great hurrah before CGI. So mm. it's the last great Stan Winston uh, type of thing where there was no CGI, where everything had to be done in frame. Everything was a practical effect, some kind of way. That changes with Jurassic Park, because Jurassic Park is a mixture of workable CGI and marionettes, puppets, mechanical things, things built to scale, but it's kind of a blend, but movie making has never been the same. Aliens is one of the last films of its era to do everything that it does practically. They really built the queen and the queen puppet really is that big. And they had multiple multiple people operating. Anyway, it was really, really something else. So I love it on the cinematography levels. I love it on just the sheer creativity of what it took for all of the art departments from the drawings and the sketchings to uh, the painting, the, the plasticine models, everything built to scale, everything that it did. It is so good, in fact, that we're willing to overlook some of the more glaring 
uh, things that just kind of would make you shake your head in another movie, like fighting off the vacuum of space by hand. Okay. <laughs> but by the time we get there, we believe so much in Ripley until we don't care that she does a superhuman feat and she does them more than one time. And <clears throat> the reason that normally I refuse to argue about the quality of this film is because uh, Sigourney Weaver was nominated for an Academy Award for her role. And if you know anything about the Academy, they never nominate sci-fi or anything like that. And this film was so good, it got an Academy Award nod. And not just in uh, for Best Actress, but in a few other categories as well. That's how good this was. And that's because of the genius of James Cameron. James Cameron, if you don't know anything about him, depending on how old you are, if you know him, you might know him from Avatar or Titanic or Aliens and True Lies and Terminator, depending on how old you are, where you got introduced to him. The secret to the genius of James Cameron is that he did every job on a movie set before he became a director. The yep. only thing James Cameron didn't do was score the film. And he had ideas about musical cues, but he couldn't write and perform music. That's literally the only thing he didn't do. So he knew about sketching, he knew about storyboards, he knew about hair and makeup, he knew about lighting, he knew about smoke effects, he knew about camera angles, he knew about all that, he knew about editing, okay? He did all that. And then he got his big break with the first Terminator and kind of the rest is history. And so that's why these days he's kind of gone more like George Lucas did with the prequels. He seems to be a little bit more enamored with the CGI and the things you can do with it as opposed to more the story thing, but that's another conversation. But here, he's, this is kind of peak Cameron. This is kind of at least peak sci-fi Cameron. And so I love this movie from every possible angle. I love the characters. <laughs> I love the lines. It's infinitely quotable. The only movie that's more quotable than Aliens is maybe Jerry Maguire. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. But, uh, you know, uh, we still quote the lines now. And Every trope that we riff on in this genre started with aliens. So if you know anything about aliens, when you see a movie that is alien-esque or just a straight aliens ripoff or alien-based, you can see them uh, using the same kind of tropes that were established here. Because the movie that establishes the tropes, they're not tropes. They're innovating. They're not tropes until they have moved a little bit more to cliche territory and everybody's done it. Okay. And so I, I'm just fascinated with this film. The musical cues have been used in commercials and other films over and over and over again. The incredible score. And so it's just, it's just fantastic. And um, people talk about it on every 10 year anniversary of Alien and Aliens and all the surviving cast members, wherever they get together. And all of them are cool. You know, we've lost a few, we've lost Bill Paxton but all of them are cool, cool with fans, love to talk about it. Um, and it's fascinating. So I can't get enough. I've watched all the DVD extras multiple times. So I cannot get enough of this film. So just telling you my bias going in that I'm fanboying, geeking out. So just so you know. So let me throw it out to my co-host and give me your general thoughts before we do deep dives into specifics. Start with Nemesis. Well, first of all, I have to say, uh, you've got a hell of a lot of Quan for that movie, so. <laughs> that I do. All right. Uh, yeah, you know, just real quick on this movie, I absolutely love this film. Um, I'm not going to go into a huge deep dive on all the things I love about it, 
but um, A, the first thing that, that really springs to mind about this was, uh, this was, you know, came out when I was in high school. I was thinking about going in the military. Uh, I'm not gonna say this is a propaganda film, but it just, after I got in the military and everything, Cameron, I don't know who advised him on how relationships are in a platoon or a squad or whatever, but whoever did it, did it very well, which was really, really cool to see, it you know? Yeah, and that camaraderie and everything camaraderie and everything is right there. And I love how he presented it. He presented it warts and all. He presented the good, the bad, and the ugly of military life, of people in the military. I've known people like I've known women like Vasquez. I've known people like Drake. I've known people like Hicks and Hudson. I have known those people and they were true to life characters and I loved it. Uh another thing about this. One of the things we talked about, Alien, another great movie, but one of our nitpicks about it was some of the characters made some really stupid decisions. It's a, it's a horror movie trope. People in horror movies make dumb decisions. I was sitting here thinking about this, and even on the expanded cut, and I've read the novelization of this, most of what goes on in this movie, the bad stuff is not because of dumb decisions. It's because of people freezing in the heat of the moment or making decisions without having the experience to do that. In the case of Lieutenant Gorman, or being sold out, you know, like they were uh, by the corporate character. So I, I love that that the, that they didn't rely on plot stupidity in order to advance the plot in this movie. Great, great stuff. The final thing I'm going to say, and one of the reasons this movie stands out for me, is that uh, I saw this movie when it first came out. I saw it in the theaters, went in the military, got out, then went to work as a defense contractor. And I tell you all that because one of the projects I worked on as a defense contractor, I could talk about it now because it's live, was building the system in aliens with the, the monitoring and everything else that they have for the Marines in real life. Are you talking and about the land warrior system? Yep. And then deploying it to the to the to the army. I right. worked on that. I helped program that. And I'll tell you right now, it's directly because of what people saw decades earlier in aliens and they're like that's cool as hell let's do that for real and we did and so uh if you don't believe that science fiction can shape the future then you're not paying attention and and this movie definitely did so yeah you took the words out of my mouth two things before i throw it to steve number one that's why you hear me say it on twitter all the time that the settings might be fictional but the impact in real life is real. So people keep saying fictional characters. Yes, fictional characters. Yes, story worlds. But it translates out here into real life. Uh, and second thing I want to say, what Cameron did, you talked about the camaraderie. Cameron actually had the troops uh, secluded, spending time together, and they got to pick their own armor. So that's why they all had the stylized armor, the different things on the armor. And uh, Drake had the headpiece and all different kind of stuff. And he purposely did not allow Sigourney Reaver or um, Paul Reiser to interact with them. So they spent a lot of time together. So while they were doing the drills and learning how to do the weapons and the exercises, they were doing that alone, away from who would play Ripley and Burke. And so that distance is there. Uh, and it, you can feel it on the set. Uh, so it was a brilliant way to get the actors to bond, to learn how to move as a unit, and still have the outsiders feel like outsiders. Go ahead, Steve. Uh, general thoughts, general impressions. 
Yeah, uh, to add a little bit to that, uh, one of the big advantages this movie had was Al Matthews, who played a Poe. Not only uh, was this guy really believable as a drill sergeant, you find out why he's so believable as a sergeant is because he actually was a Marine sergeant, and he was a decorated one. He was, in fact, the first uh, black sergeant uh, promoted during the Vietnam War. So, you know, this guy knew what he was talking about. He was like the Arlie Ermey. So if you know who Arlie Ermey was from Full Metal Jacket and things like that, that was the role Al Matthews played in this movie. And this mm-hmm. is part of the reason why everything's so believable. I think uh, he, they probably drew a lot on his experience. Um, and I think this is kind of like, you know, when he says, like, uh, assholes and elbows. I mean, this is something that Arlie Ermey also said. And so I have a feeling this is a Marine thing. So I, I really, really appreciated all of that. Um, I, I like this movie on a couple of levels. Uh, one of is just that this is the best military science fiction movie ever made, bar none. It is a better Starship Troopers than Starship Troopers, and, I, and, and that drives me nuts because I love Starship Troopers the book, and they ruined it. Aliens was better, okay, in every respect. Uh, it really felt like more of a movie. Um, in, in some ways, it's like a Vietnam War movie. Uh, kind of transposed uh, into the world of aliens, you know, with the sci-fi horror and all that. And it is amazing. Um, and, and, it's, and it's just really, really well done. And, and you see how war affects all these characters and, and the trauma and all of that. And, you know, just being out there against this enemy that is really, really clever, you know, knows the terrain, knows how to get you in every different way. And, and, and it's, just, it's, just, it's just a perfect marriage. And, and also, uh, for me, it's because I'm, I haven't served like Nemesis has or like Bracey has, but um, I spent a lot of time around military people. I was a military brat growing up. Um, and on top of that, uh, my mother actually uh, taught language to people uh, serving in the Army. So I, I've known a lot of people that have served, and they act like they do in this movie. Uh, so and, and not only that, I, I'm always, every time I watch this, I'm reminded of the Murphy's Laws of Combat. Um, you know, and, and you probably know, like, whatever goes wrong will. But there are also a lot of other different things, and I'll keep bringing in one of them. There's nothing more dangerous than a second lieutenant with a map. And that comes in absolutely into this movie, especially when you look at Gorman. Yeah. So, you know, I would say just look up the Murphy's Laws of Combat and read them. They're funny, but they're based in truth and what actual people have had to deal with in combat. Um, And this movie just absolutely perfectly got that feeling more than a lot of movies now do. Actual war movies are not as well done in that respect as this movie. So in addition, so I, I will say, while I originally, when I saw um, this movie, liked the first movie a little bit better, over time this movie has actually cemented more with me to the point where I kind of prefer this one, and this is the one I watch more often. And, um, and I'm coming in relatively fresh, only having seen it like right before Prometheus came out. So, you know, uh, that kind of shows you what an effect this movie has had on me over, to, over the limited time that I've had with it. Do you know how many times I've had, when I was in the military, I had some snarky subordinate say something to me, and I would lean in and go, look into my eye. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Keenan, on some of what Steve said, um, and we're going to go into detail very shortly. <clears throat> this is a blend, and it's a blend like we hadn't seen before or since. This is a blend of science fiction military, horror, and action. And the spine of the movie is actually a love story slash rescue plot. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And it holds together 
as a story. It holds together well in both concept and execution. That's kind of, you know, at a premium at these days where we see that most of the time when we review films or TV shows, we're shaking our heads when we're watching them because they're falling apart in front of us. But this one holds together. There's a spine, and that spine is that love story slash rescue plot. It's brilliant. Go ahead, Bracey. Uh, general thoughts. You know, it's funny. You mentioned the love story, and I, I go back to thinking about Siskel and Ebert's review of uh, Mad Max the Road Warrior, and they were talking about all the elements that went together in this film, which was a, a great post-apocalyptic action set piece. They said the only thing that was missing, really, and they, they could have had the setup for it. He definitely had characters, was a love story uh, for Mad Max. But they said it's hard to have a love story at 100 miles an hour, and yet somehow Cameron manages to pull it off. He's got all these densely packed elements in here, and like a consummate, um, uh, uh, what do you call the guys who uh, lead the orchestra? Uh, the, uh, the maestro. Conductor. Yeah, conductor or the maestro. Uh, he is just a consummate man when it comes to that, that he can, he can multitask all these elements. And that, like you said, DT, that comes to his upbringing up through the, the old Roger Corman school of filmmaking, if you will, or you just had to do everything if you wanted to get anywhere uh, working for him. Uh, so he knows it inside and out. And he is a type A personality. It's completely uh, aggressively driven for success. And I think that's what makes all of this work. And work it does, like you said, it's it, it's something that we've seen tried since, but never anywhere nearly successfully. Uh, the fact that it is a a sci-fi horror, uh, war action kind of movie all blended together. It, even though it's in this fantastical setting, like Nemesis said, having been in the military myself, it feels real. The people feel real. The situations feel real. Uh, I get the Vietnam vibe. You know, like they used to call like the tunnel rats going down there. They used to call it bug hunting, you know, cause you got to crawl in the earth and, you know, these guys are crawling in these claustrophobic little tunnels, uh, <laughs> hunting these, uh, hunting these low technology creatures that are very dangerous. And it's, uh, I really appreciate the fact that he didn't try and remake a horror film. Uh, I'm sure he didn't want to just make that film all over again. Ridley Scott had already done that to perfection. Uh, Ridley Scott had made the haunted house in space. And so he took it in a different direction and still kept a lot of the horrific elements, which made it its own thing. And uh, he's always been a guy to watch, especially after this, you know, I think even more so than Terminator. Uh, this is like, you know, a real keystone movie for him. And th I can't say enough good about it. He just really juggles all these disparate parts and somehow comes out with genius. Absolutely. And now, also during this review, I'm going to be toggling back and forth between my geek hat and my writer's code hat because I really you can't really help it with something on this level. So I'm going to be pointing things out as a fan and as a writer that just absolutely uh, fascinated me. I'm sorry, I had to put the maestro up there after. So uh, we'll start off by talking about um, there's only one spine, but the spine is set up so beautifully. So the spine of the story is the love story, and that is the love between Ripley and Newt. 
But now, if you know anything about the extended cut or the director's cut, uh, they cut one of the biggest and best scenes in the movie, and that is when we discover, because uh, Sigourney Weaver was furious when she saw the theatrical cut, because they cut the scene for the sake of time. Mm -hmm. um, long story short, Ripley's in front of a holographic park, but she's actually in a hallway in a hospital oh, yeah. or in the building. Yep. And uh, she keeps asking Burke, is there any news about my daughter? And Burke basically tells her that her daughter died at the age of 66 because Ripley was in suspended animation for 57 years. And uh, the last time she saw Amy, she was 11 years old. And so they show a picture of a woman in her mid 60s that had just passed and she was cremated and she didn't have any children. And Ripley's looking at the life that might have been. Ripley's looking at the life that this experience of the first movie snatched away from her. Uh, ironically, that picture that Ripley's looking at is actually Sigourney Weaver's mother. So <laughs> it's a little, you know, info from the DVD extras. But uh, uh, I can see why Miss Weaver was furious that they cut this out of the theatrical cut because it sets Ripley's whole motivation up. Everything that she does after losing the daughter, that that love and that passion is transferred to the new daughter. And the reason that's important is because it is literally all she has left, okay? And so once again, it's brilliant. And so uh, she set up uh, from the opening of the film because the opening of the film is the exact setup from when we see the first film close, except we find out as the movie goes on that it's 57 years later and everything that comes along with that. So uh, we talked about, you guys talked about in your comments about how it's real and the reason that it feels real. Well, the reason that it feels real is because Cameron knows how to bring up real human emotion in a fantastical space. So the first thing I want to talk about is the main spine of the story and your reactions to it. Can you relate to it? Have you ever been in a situation where you lost someone or something and then you had another shot and you were willing to go to the wall to it like Ripley did for Newt? Um, just tell me that whole thing, because we're going to do some more deep dives. But just tell me that whole thing about her whole motivation. Can you relate to that at all? You know, have you had experiences like that? Or if not, tell me how you feel about that as a writer, about seeing her love for Newton, the, the extreme she was willing to go to for this little girl because she didn't have anything else. Let me hear your thoughts on that, Star with Steve. Yeah, I, I, I think everybody can on some level relate to having lost somebody important to them that they would do anything to bring back. And so, you know, maybe you might connect to somebody else that reminds you of that person. I, that, that absolutely makes sense to me. Um, I, I haven't lost um, a child like that, okay? I have not been in that position. I'm sure that those of us in, in, in the group that are parents, you know, absolutely can relate to that because that, that's, that is a fear that, you know, resonates with you. You know, losing your kid is, the, is, is a huge, huge blow to any parent. Um, no question about that. Um, I haven't personally dealt with that, but I can understand what, what that's like. I can, I can understand, um, I can sympathize with that motivation completely. Uh, what I can relate to, I would say personally, is the idea of trauma. Um, because uh, there, like a long, long time ago, I was in a really bad car accident and, and um, it kind of messed me up for a good long while afterwards. I was never driving the same way again for a long time. And I finally learned, you know, to be okay with that. Uh, but I can understand where Ripley is coming from because of this. I can understand that 
Ripley is seeing, you know, the aliens and, and you know, she sees this thing come out of somebody's chest and, and she's, you know, instinctively grabbing her, her own chest because, you know, she remembers what happened to Kane. Okay, so all of these things are that are flashing back to her and coming back to her because of that. That I relate to very, very strongly. I completely uh, see that aspect of that. And they, they handled that, I think, very, very brilliantly. And I love, love that Ripley's arc in this, in this story is so perfect and so complete because it is about her um, facing that trauma, you know, and, and coming to terms with it so she can move on with her life. Um, and finding new, you know, is they, okay, I lost my daughter, but I have a purpose now. I have a place in the universe now. Yes, I have yes. something to belong to, you know, and I can move forward with my life having faced this horrible creature from my past, uh, this demon from my past. And now it's like I have something to live for and I can move on and, and, and I can put this behind me. Um, I think that that's, that that's absolutely wonderful. And I think that, that Cameron absolutely executed that arc perfectly. Um, as well as anybody could have. Um, you know, I think they handled that very well. Excellent, excellent. We're going to talk a lot about PTSD uh, in this episode because it's all over this film. And it's all over this film in a very real and tangible, relatable way as well. Go ahead, Bracey, your thoughts about the whole spine of that love story and losing a child and, and the, the extreme she went to for Newt. I'll tell you, thankfully, I've never gone through anything like that. Although uh, those of you who are on the show do know that recently uh, my wife and I uh, faced a very serious uh, scare with cancer. And so even though you don't want to go there, uh, your mind is a, is a hideous thing that just goes wherever the hell it wants to sometimes. And so uh, thinking about a, a future without her was a, uh, always lurking and it was like the most horrible thing I could imagine ever uh, since we ourselves were never able to have children. That's the only thing that could top it would be to lose a child. But that alone, you know, uh, having spent uh, 28 years of my life together with somebody and suddenly thinking that coming to an abrupt end was shattering. So getting into that headspace of uh, someone like Ripley uh, whose life is effectively over. Uh, she's on the hook for the price of the Nostromo. Uh, she's blacklisted from any kind of job possible that's just not going to be like the basement level uh, blue collar worker. You know, she's got to take whatever she can get. Uh, she has no future. She has no present. Uh, the the only hope that we as human beings have as in terms of uh, any sort of serial immortality on the planet that we reside on, uh, for those of you who may or may not believe in the afterlife, is the hope in our that we have in our children. And all of that has been stripped away from her. Uh, she has been stripped down to nothing. And yet there's that that spark that we have to go on e even when we are absolutely miserable and it's enough to bring her into the scenario once again, back into this nightmare, hoping that it, the nightmare is actually not going to happen. And yet, and maybe she's just, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of a, even though this is the most terrifying thing she can experience the alien, but maybe there's, maybe there's a little bit of a death wish there. Uh, maybe she is hoping things will go wrong. Uh, because like, you know, uh, Nemesis talked about like uh, Newt has that thousand yard stare. Uh, 
uh, Sigourney Weaver affects something like that earlier in the film. So there's just this uh, dreadful emptiness there. And it just shows uh, what a brilliant actress she is. And uh, uh, like you guys, I, I would have been furious too, like to, to take that scene away from her, uh, especially for time. You could have just, you know, what's five more minutes in the movie? I don't think that would have interrupted the pacing. And I'm glad today we have the option of seeing director's cuts and things like that. So that's uh, quite the blessing. Uh, but I know for myself, if if I had a chance to jumpstart myself in the way that this character gets to, if there was anything I could have done within my own power uh, to keep my wife with me, it, there would have been no hesitation. No hesitation. So uh, the story is told beautifully that way. And I'm also a big sucker for redemption. And even though none of what happened was Ripley's fault, she is still bearing the mark of Cain from Alien. And so through no fault of her own, this is also a redemption story. And I am a huge sucker for redemption stories. So that's just one more thing that just makes this a, a real masterclass in how to put together a great story with great characters and great arcs. All right, I'm gonna talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Go ahead, Nemesis. Thoughts on Ripley's reaction? Can you relate her extremes for trying to get her life back or maybe trying to create a life given her circumstances? Yeah, um, I'll say that, I mean, I, I grew up in a rough area um, and from a very early age, been around a lot of violence, a lot of violent death. Um, but I kind of want to save that for the PTSD discussion that we're going to have because I think it's very relevant there. But what struck me about Ripley here, and one of the things that really annoys me about modern movie discussion, is so often you hear people say that you, there's no representation of women in action, or <laughs> women haven't been heroes and stuff. And I just point <laughs> to this movie right here as a starting off point of Ripley. And why I think that Ripley's journey here is so iconic is because I think there's three factors here. One is that uh, you have all these strong male characters, you know, I mean, and you've got Vasquez, uh, Vasquez, who is a strong female character, but she's still military. I mean, they're kids mm. supposed to be strong. But here, the main character, the hero, the one that perseveres is Ripley, who has not got military experience. She does it on her own. It's her hero's journey. It's her own gumption. That's number one. Number two, if this movie was made today, to do that, they would have undercut all of the other characters, mm -hmm. all the military characters, and especially the men. They would have made them stupid, sexist, horrible, incompetent. Cameron didn't need to do that. And why? Because Ripley was strong enough to stand on her own and persevere on her own. And other people died because things went wrong, not because of stupid decisions they did. So it was realistic in that way and that she emerged as a hero. That's classic. That's classic all through fiction, all through literature, all through history. It's wonderful. That is a strong female character, which brings me to the third thing. The thing I really love about Ripley here is that Ripley reminds me of women in my own life. They may not be fighting aliens or have lost children or whatever, but I'll tell you, you get between a woman, any woman, and children, <laughs> good luck. 
<laughs> my wife is a teacher. God forbid that somebody tries to do something to one of her students. They'd be dead man walking, you know? <laughs> Try and do something to one of her kids, good luck. You know, Mama Bear comes out. And then you throw into the fact, and, and I know that a lot of you are going to identify with this, I'm Hispanic. Hispanic women, you know, you always hear this crap about, oh, you know, Hispanic male, machismo and everything. Yeah, it's there. But you know who rules the house? <laughs> who is the, the protector of the house? Who lays down the law? It is your abuelo and your mama. You know, <laughs> they're the ones that lay down the law. And if you true. don't listen to what's going on, you're going to get a chancla to the side of the head. You know? <laughs> and for all of you who don't know what a chancla is, take off a flip-flop and throw it with boomerang-like accuracy so that it hits you 500 yards down the street. That's your grandmother. You have to your abuela coming out going, cabrón, <laughs> boom, upside the head. So, you know, that is that same spirit that Ripley is doing here, but it's feminine. She is a woman. She has something going on with Hicks, and she's not afraid about it. It's not forced. It's natural. She is still a woman. She still has her feminine side. She's still not afraid to open up and try and be a mother to Newt, even though she's had loss. She doesn't have to come off as being, you know, queen bitch or something like that. She's just who she is, and she's a strong woman on her own terms. And, uh, you know, I, and I hate to hit this point, but is that what we should be aiming for? Is that you could be a woman, you could be feminine, you could be strong, you could be heroic, but still be a female, you know? And I think that's what's one, one of the most wonderful things about Ripley as a character in this movie. Well, now, <clears throat> part of it, is Ripley as a person. We'll get into it a little bit later when we talk about the fact that the climax of this movie is about two mothers fighting for their children, mm -hmm. both with a legitimate desire to protect their offspring, which is once again, so feral and visceral and relatable on an unconscious level, because once again, it's brilliant. That's why I love this movie so, because you get it. Because when mm -hmm. they, meet, they meet without words, but we'll get there. I also want to point out that Ripley is dealing with three levels of stress, three sources. The first source of stress she's dealing with is the fact that she's a woman out of time. Okay. Second source of stress that she's dealing with is her memories of, as you said, watching Kane get chest bursted. How would you ever get over something like that? But the third level of stress she's dealing with is what she has to do to fight for her child when she gets in a new environment. So that speaks to her strength as a person and as a character, to Cameron's writing skill and Sigourney's acting skill to deal with the time displacement, the, the, the loss of family, the uh, idea of, of going out to the new family and everything she has to fight to do that, but also the trauma, the trauma of seeing Kane get on that table and seeing that baby Aileen come out of him. How could you ever get over something like that? Yafet Koto, the late great Yafet Koto said, as an actor, he couldn't sleep for weeks filming that scene. That's how intense it was. He said his wife was trying to figure out ways to help him calm down. He's like, he couldn't calm down because he couldn't sleep. That's how deep the chest burst was. The actors themselves were traumatized. So you know how real that was. So now I want to segue into 
something I'm just I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on it because we talk a lot about uh, about people doing stupid things for horror to work, and this movie has the least amount of that we've probably ever seen, but it does have some. Uh, you won't know this unless you're familiar with the director's cut. In the theatrical release, we don't see LV-426 until the troops and Ripley get there. In the extended cut, there are some intercuts there where we see Hadley's Hope, which is a colony that was established on LV-426 that, according to Van Leeuwen, has been there for over 20 years. And then we find out that, we find out as the movie progresses that Burke sends Newt's family out to that ship it's Newt's father that come that gets face hugged. And so there's two things that happened that had me scratching my head. First thing that happened was, how did they never encounter the derelict ship in all that time? Now that's feasible, but I just wanna hear what you think about it. Second thing is, we talked about this last episode about the quarantine protocol. So the parents go in the ship with no mask, no armor, no helmet. They just walk right in the front door, like, you know, la, la, la. And then when he comes out and he's face hugged, obviously they brought him back just like that because the alien hatched. And there's a third thing that I don't know if people have thought about, and that is that, and they didn't really get into it in Alien 3 like they should have. But did he hatch a queen? If that was their first time encountering the ship, and if Newt's father was the first human that was a victim of a chest burster, then whatever came out of him, how did the how did all the other aliens came about? Had to be from eggs. How did the eggs get there? But did he hatch a queen and everybody dealt with that? So I just want your thoughts on that. Was was it stupid for them to just stroll in that strip that ship? We know Burke was a slime, but what about them? Number one. Number two, what about the protocols when they bring him back with the face hugger on? And number three, it's one of the still mysterious elements of the lore is how are queens made? Because in Alien 3, there was actually a queen face hugger, but they cut that out. But we'll get to that later. So tell me your thoughts about all choice, because I am like obsessed with the uh, the whole alien and xenomorph and all that. Uh, so I, I will give you some uh, some lore uh, that is uh, canon to the movie and outside their own alien extended universe, if you will. Um, as I'm sure you guys talked about last time, uh, you probably discussed the deleted scenes uh, from the original Alien film, in which we see that the uh, xenomorph, uh, while it does kill some of its victims, it also would egg them in the uh, deleted scene, uh, transforming them uh, into the egg. And, uh, I will say, uh, in some ways I was a little disappointed in alien in that respect or aliens in that respect that they, uh, I can see where they got the idea for an insectile, uh, sort of hierarchy in society, given that the, the idea behind the alien itself is a parasitic organism, something that we do see, uh, in our own with like, a tarantula hawk wasps and things like that. But I, I, I really latched onto the idea that the, uh, the alien creature could uh, metamorph out of your DNA and also metamorph you into an egg structure. Going into the greater lore of that, we have a couple of things that could have happened. Uh, one, indeed, they could have uh, stumbled across a queen egg. Uh, two, the alien species in the extended lore 
is able to become whatever it needs to for the hive to continue. Yes. Uh, with enough time, a drone like the one that we had on the uh, the Nostromo would have eventually become a queen to establish commie, uh, a colony once there were enough victims in play. Uh, it didn't need to at the time because it realized it had a very limited supply of uh, hosts. But say uh, the Nostromo made it back to Earth, well then, it would have mutated into a queen or it would have uh, produced a special jelly that would have allowed the uh, next generation of facehugger to develop into a queen facehugger or a queen egg. So that's how it works in the wider uh, continuity of the uh, books and the comic books. I think when you've got that many eggs already in the hold, uh, clearly the ship was uh, uh, the, the, the derelict ship was meant to disseminate these things for some sinister purpose. Uh, you have to uh, assume that uh, when when uh, Cameron decided that we were going to go with the more insectile route of the you know the queen ant, the queen bee, the queen terminator, that sort of uh, terminator uh, termite, um, that there definitely has to be a mechanism in play that'll do that. And uh, if you know anything about insects, that's kind of how. Uh, you often get the queen of a hive. Uh, the, eventually, the uh, the workers will produce the royal jelly, which actually allows the uh, the standard bee to metamorphosize into a queen bee. So that's probably what happened here, since they're drawing a lot on um, insect morphology for this sort of thing. As for uh, protocols and that, I think Burke, being the slimy little ladder climber that he was, <laughs> I think he very purposely chose a family to go out there. If you send a work crew out there, they might follow protocols. Oh man, Jack's down. Oh, we got a quarantine, Jack. You can't come in the buggy. We're like we'll send a, like we'll go for help. You know, you guys sit here and keep Jack stabilized. If you send a family out there, nobody is going to leave a family member. I think that speaks to Burke's character. I, I know it's not in there, but that's my suspicion because I don't remember reading that it was Burke specifically in the novelization either. Uh, but no, yeah, I, I, that, in the movie, when Ripley confronts him, she said, "I just checked the colony log, uh, six twelve seventy two signed Burke Carter J. He sent them out to that ship." Okay, he he's the one. Okay, yeah, yeah that 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 plays into what I'm thinking then. Uh, that Burke chose not just a random people to go there. I'm I'm sure given that he was willing to sacrifice Newt as well as Ripley, as we'll find out later in the film, mm -hmm. I think he sent the family out there on purpose just for that reason, knowing that they would break protocol. That's brilliant and probably true. And uh, definitely with the insectile stuff. Yeah, that is true in the larger lore that they all have the ability to spontaneously morph. Like you mm -hmm. said, there are, there are other insects that do that on earth. So once again, it's relatable. And as we've seen in so many monster movies that uh, have the human element as a, as a wild card, uh, once again, we've proved that the most dangerous thing on Earth or in space or wherever is still the human being. Still a bureaucrat. Uh, <laughs> still a corporate dude. Go ahead, Steve. Thoughts about how was that stupid of them? I love Bracey's explanation. I, I think all this brilliant. But, you know, was that stupid of them to go wandering in, you know, no helmet? At least Kane had a helmet. We got to give Kane the face. He shouldn't have stuck his face in that egg. But at no, least we've, got, we've got an atmosphere now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but still. 
Well, uh, I don't know. I wouldn't have done that. But anyway, what do you think? <laughs> That's stupid. Is that, you know, is that our first little check mark of people doing stu- stupid stuff to make the plot work? Or what do you think, Steve? There's a little bit of that, um, but the thing is, is what I love about this movie is that all the stupidity is planned stupidity by Cameron. <laughs> like, all, there, there are a lot of characters that do dumb things, but they're believable dumb things, um, mm-hmm. particularly, you know, later on, like with Gorman and whatnot. Um, so, you know, all of this, yeah, they do dumb things, but they're things that you buy because of the way the characters act, you know, their motivations and all that. Um, less so, I think, with a family, like, yeah, there's a, there's a space alien ship, we're gonna, just going to go in there. Now, they're not trained, uh, they're, they, they don't seem to be anyway, they just seem to be prospectors, like, okay, you know, we're just trying to make a living, you know, we're going to go in, and we're going to take great risk with ourselves and not really think about the consequences. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not such an unbelievable thing that they wouldn't have thought about that. But, I, I mean, I personally wouldn't have done it. I, you know, I certainly, you know, would make sure that I at least had a space suit and I wouldn't go sticking my face near any eggs or anything like that. But, you know, you could kind of understand that maybe they were desperate. You know, they were they were trying to, to find that big score and maybe their greed just got the better of them. You know, it's like, okay, I want to make a better life for Timmy and Newt. You know, I mean, so like, I don't want to uh, make that risk. Yeah? If, you, if you don't mind for a second, think about Parker from the previous film. Yeah, he was always talking about those bonuses. Company's yeah. going to offer us a bonus. Yeah, yeah if you give me more yeah. money, I'd be happy to do it for you. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's even and it makes even more sense in the case of the family because uh, you know they have their kids to feed. You know they want to make sure that their kids have a good life. You know they're 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 hoping maybe they can put you know Newt through college, you know, or whatever the equivalent <laughs> is in space. You know they're they're going to have all those kinds of normal things. Um, it's just that they're not thinking about the risk and the consequences. You know, I mean, how how risk inclined do you have to be to say, yes, I am going to leave my home planet to go to this, you know, far off rock, this inhospitable looking rock, which was just recently terraformed. I mean, these are people that probably were down on their luck to begin with and just mm. probably took a contract from Whale and Yutani to have any hope of getting out there. So maybe they're doing this and they're saying, okay, this is not just the, the, you know, a way to help the kids. This, maybe this is a way of getting back home to Earth and make a sizable amount of money doing that. And so, I, okay, I will take the risk for, for my kids you know, so that they can have a better life. Maybe go home to Earth. You know, maybe you know, live it up a little bit. I, I can completely understand where that would outweigh you know, thinking about you know, the, the risk that you would have your, your, your life ended by a facehugger. Um, so I can, uh, I can, I can get that aspect when it comes to everything else and all of that. I blame Burke. I blame Burke almost completely. I, I am completely bracing. I had similar thoughts. I, I think that Burke or, or, or whoever it is that Waylon Yutani, who's above him, uh, very probably said, yeah, we're going to go and make sure that they become uh, hosts for all these eggs so we can study them. They clearly have no regard for human life. They do not care about these people heading out. We, we've seen this before, that they're willing to send people out, um, you know, get them killed, you know, just on the chance that we can, we can develop this bioweapon. So clearly they, they sent all of these people, probably gave them incentives and whatever to get them out there. And then uh, probably they very well, like uh, bureaucracies tend to do, um, put in, you know, stupid rules that are contra survival because the, what they want is not for these people to survive. What they want is for the alien to survive in a state that they can get them back to Earth. So that's what all of this was about. They, they set up the situation knowing it would happen. 
Burke knew what was going to happen when he did it. Um, and we, when we've seen, you know, the extent to which he has been manipulating everything. So, yeah, I, I imagine that probably the protocols were uh, sabotaged to begin with by Burke or Yuelan Yutani or whoever was at Yuelan Yutani that was giving the orders for this, whether it was Burke or his superior or whoever. Um, yeah, so, no, I, 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 this is one of those cases where, yeah, people act stupid, but all of it uh, was intentional and all of it in a way to further the story. And I feel like that that's basically what Cameron was doing here, uh, even if some of it does look a little silly at times. But believable dumb, I believe, was your phrase. So yeah, yeah. believable dumb, yeah. Now, <clears throat> uh, for those of you that are can't get enough of this world, like we can't, like I said last time, I highly recommend Earth Hive. Earth Hive is one of the few in, uh, books that came out early enough for when the aliens actually do get to Earth and what that would look like and what happens. Second thing is in the Dark Horse novelizations, they go into more about what happens with the royal jelly in the movies. They talk about the xenomorphs as bioweapons. In the books, they have the added layer of the fact that that royal jelly has medicinal properties that are unlike anything I'd ever seen before, which makes it a very, very valuable resource. It has uh, multiplication properties. It can do more things than one substance can normally do, given its texture and its substance. And they're fascinated with all the ways they can sell it, use it, put it in drinks, use it as a salve, help people with their eyesight, help people with fertility, uh, talking about possible Alzheimer's and cancer cures, all different kinds of things they said that this stuff could do. So they really expanded that. And so the bureaucratic mentality, the corporate mentality is running all through this. And so again, you see that in, in the extended novelizations and the comics, the Dark Horse comics. Go ahead, Nims. What do you think? Is this an example of stupid stuff to make the plot work? You know, no helmets, that kind of thing, protocols, because uh, you talked about last time about how they did have a protocol and just Ash violated it. Right. Ripley stood on it and Ash overrode her. Well, I, th I think the thing with the, the whole alien uh, biology and how they could become a, a queen and everything, I think Jeff hit that, you know, out of the park. You know, even before I knew all that, I, you know, theorized, you know, based on them being insects, that there was some sort of royal jelly or something that they could feed a normal xenomorph to turn it into a queen. So, you know, that that seemed believable to me. Um, on Steve's point, just to build on it a little bit, I absolutely agree with them that A, that Burke sent those people out there on purpose and B, um, it's in the novelizations and it's also in one of the scenes they cut. There's a control room where they get and it shows them getting that directive from Burke and the director oh. and the director says, you know, this is some wild food chase. You know, who do we have out, you know, that'll go out there to do the scrap work or whatever, just to go see what's out there. And they throw these people to the wolves. And it's like, to me, it sounds like, they're on the edge of this society. They're desperate. They're scrappers, you know. So if you play Fallout 4 or anything like that, you know, that whole mentality where you're living day to day by going out and scrapping things. And, you know, and suddenly you pull up and you've got this whole huge alien spaceship and you've got the rights to it. You're a prospector. You're going in there. You know, greed takes over. There's also other motivations. There's a family and everything. But yeah, it's it's most definitely greed. It makes sense to me. 
um, at that point when they go in there and then they see the egg, we didn't see that scene. So yeah, that could be something stupid right there where it was like, <laughs> oh, let's put my face in the egg. You know, <laughs> we, we don't know how that went down. So, and uh, we don't see that in the novelization either. We just know that they went in there and then they come back later and, and he's got the face hacker on him, which brings me to the final part. And I absolutely agree. This is Burke. In fact, to my point of view, uh, and this is me as a writer and as a, a longtime lover of this movie and this book, uh, putting my own thoughts on what happened here because it's not spelled out. But I could definitely see that family. You know, the wife drives back. She's like, let us in, let us in. They're like, whoa, what is this thing on this huge face? We're calling. We sent you out there. We're calling the company to find out what to do now. And then Burke is like, Oh no, we need this. This is a valuable specimen. You bring him into the colony. Mm. That's how that's how I see that going down. So yeah. I definitely see the colony going, wait, whoa, wait a minute. You're not coming in here with that on your face. And they're like, We're we're calling the you know, Wayland Mutani to see what the hell is going on here. And then Burke is like, Oh yeah, that's valuable. The company needs that. You bring him in and you run tests and stuff, and then you know, the rest is history. So I, I definitely think that's the way that went down. So Yep. Okay, now that's what I'm going to talk about next because that's something I've been curious about. So what happens in the film, and I want to note for the record that Ripley only goes back because she can't sleep. So she calls Burke and says, you know, just tell me one thing, Burke, you're going out there to wipe them out, not to study, not to bring back. Because she keeps waking up with the nightmares. They key in on that in one of the books. And they talk about the actual spore connection and psychic bond that you have when you've been around an alien. So Ripley was infected, and that's why she couldn't sleep. So it wasn't just the PTSD in the in the books. It's again a brilliant spin on what we saw in the movies. But so Ripley agrees to go because she can't shake the nightmare. Okay, so she gets out there, and they're in the hypersleep chambers, and they all wake up. So really cool. That scene, by the way, was done with a mirror. There are only four of those chambers, and they put a mirror to make it look like those <laughs> of them. Oh, that's cool. Nice. Doesn't save money. Uh, but here's what I want to talk about next because of what you just said. Later on in the film, uh, they find the lab where they have the two to four dead face huggers and the two live ones. Bishop, the android, is reading through the logs and he says, Meritrek John Jay, they died trying to take it off of him. So they did get it back in the colony. But here's my question. What I want to know, because by the time the Marines and Ripley and Burke get to the buildings, they've already had their last stand. Everything's trashed. There's barricades that the aliens broke through. They tried to fight violently, but to no avail. But what I'm trying to get is how exactly did that go down? Because they come back and there's a chest burster. So it's a baby alien. So that means somebody had to do what Ash did and say, don't kill it. Because you could have killed it when it first came out if you could contain it. But then at some point, there's more face huggers because they had them in the lab. So either that one morphed into a queen and laid more eggs. That means more people say, what is this? And they got face hugged. Or see, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Because everything that happened trashed their living space. That means there had to be either some type of multiplication or invasion from the cooling tower to get all the aliens over there where the people got cocooned. How? That's what I want to know. 
and then we're going to talk about newton ptsd but give me your thoughts on how exactly so i want you to imagine that you're a colonist and by the way everybody's listening make a game of this okay so i want you to imagine that you're a colonist and what has just happened is newt's family has come back in the dad's face of and two days later a day and a half later out comes mr snappy mouth what happens after that that we don't see that gets to the total devastation of the colony and newt being the sole survivor being on the run so give me your thoughts on that uh go ahead steve yeah well okay, no, you've already rewritten that scene tried, in your mind <laughs> they did kind of try to do something similar to that they did revisit hadley's hope it's just that it happened to be in one of the worst alien video games ever made alien colonial marines <laughs> uh, yeah I, we will try to ignore that <laughs> um yeah, as far as how that this would have gone, I, I, I imagine you could probably make a movie about it in and of itself. Um, and I imagine it probably occurred maybe something a little bit along the lines of what happened in the original Alien. You have one little creature going around, you know, and he's gradually, you know, hit, uh, you know picking them off one by one because these colonists don't know what they're doing. You know, they, they, they have no idea how to deal with this thing. They have not been told. I imagine they were purposely kept in the dark by Burke. Uh, throughout this whole time, so they don't know how to fight this thing. Um, so, you know, the only one who might have any kind of idea of how bad the situation is is Newt, because she watched her dad get face-hugged, and probably she started, you know, seeing bad things happening, and she had enough sense, and because she's not a high-priority target, you know, she was able to disappear, you know, in the, vent in the ventilation ducts, and she had her little hiding uh, place that we saw later where Ripley finds her. Okay, so we, we gradually see that. But I, I imagine probably, you know, the, the, because the thing is, these aliens, they do act strategically uh, in, the, in, this, in this movie. Uh, so I imagine probably, you know, they probably started off like, you know, with the senior uh, sort of officials that were in the colony and um, destroyed their organization and, and just worked their way down. Um, I, I imagine you could get something, a, a really great horror movie, you know, just focusing on, you know, how these things multiplied, you know, how they uh, get, you know, made new eggs, you know, drag them all off, you know, all this, this whole thing. And, and, you know, we saw that there was definitely fights going on. We saw that there were definitely points where the alien must have gotten injured because uh, one thing that they find that Hicks finds early on is evidence that the alien's blood was spilled. So clearly yeah. this thing got hurt along yeah. the way, too. Uh, you know, because it was splashing acid. So, you know, I would say maybe like later on, they kind of realized, okay, we're in trouble. We got to fight these things. Uh, but they weren't prepared as to how to fight them. You know, so they ended up getting mowed down by the xenomorphs. So, yeah, I, I think that you could get a really, really great uh, game or movie or, you know, some kind of spinoff story, you know, just focusing on this, this kind of thing. And it would work, you know, very much according to formula. Um, I, I'm really curious about how that would go down. I would like to see, you know, somebody tackle this. Maybe the people that did Alien Isolation, which actually is a good Aliens video game, uh, it, you know, doing that in that style, I think that that would be amazing. It's hard and, It's hard and, to win, though. It's easy to be scared, but it's hard to win Alien Isolation. Also, uh, I want to point out some numbers here. Uh, over 150 colonists. Yeah. No weapons. Anybody have weapons? 
Uh, yeah. You know, that kind of thing. So I, I'm just, again, I'm just trying to imagine the scenario. Go ahead. They, and must, have, they must have improvised weapons, I think. Yeah, no, they, they had to have. But, I, you know, uh, again, again, I'm just trying to picture. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. When there's a panic and when there's an outbreak, there's ground zero. And then it spreads. So there had to be enough people to respond to the spread. That's what I'm saying. And again, they had face huggers in the lab. So they were studying them. So people were getting face hugged and they were like, well, we're not going to kill it or whatever. We're, we're going to try to take it off. But they oh, had they told them not to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm like, I'm like, cause I'm just trying to imagine because somebody would have been like, hold on just a blue black minute. <laughs> Are y'all not paying attention to what's happening? But anyway, <laughs> go, <laughs> go ahead, Nemesis. How do you imagine that being yeah. taken over and being in the shape that it's in when we see it when the Marines and, and Ripley and Burke show up. I I have thought about this uh, quite a bit. I do think there is a plot hole here. Uh, there is one plot hole here. And that is the fact that, uh, you know, when, when they're reading off who got killed uh, when they tried to remove the facehugger, mm -hmm. that's the father. That's his name. So they brought him back. They tried to remove it from him and he died. So then that begs the question. And, and maybe Jeff knows the answer to this. Why, you know, you would imagine the facehuggers are keeping the host alive until it, it, it births itself. The xenomorph births because it needs a live host. Mm -hmm. So if he died before it bursts from his chest, how did we get a xenomorph in the first place? So I think that's a legitimate plot hole right well, there. That guy that Bishop was talking about is not Newt's father. His name is John J. Marichak. Newt's name is Rebecca Jordan. Oh, okay. So then, now, okay. then stop me. I was wrong there. So then there's no plot hole there. All right. So then I have thought about the other stuff, though. The way I see it is that, um, I mean, there's any number of ways you can explain uh, him you know, the xenomorph coming out and not being killed. He might have been, it was on him, it fell off. They have him in a hospital ward for testing and everything. He's sitting there, he's sleeping, and then all of a sudden it erupts when no one's around. They might send him home. Uh, there's there's any number of ways that happens. And then, I, you know, I agree with Steve. The next thing that happens is that this alien starts grabbing people and is entombing them, you know. Plus, we've seen these aliens have a way they're connected. So... It's not out of the realm of possibility that it is. It knows that all these other eggs are in the ship, and it takes off and starts transporting eggs and bringing them back to the colony. No, that's good. And it's putting these people and tubing these people there, and people start getting face hugged. So now you know, but they've got the locators on. So now security or whatever is like, well, where where you know people are disappearing? They go down there, they find people in tube with these face hugger things, they bring them back. And then that's how we find people getting, you know, the, the face huggers that they found and everything. Maybe they brought some eggs back and took those out. That's why we have some live face huggers and stuff like that. But meanwhile, uh, there's more and more people disappearing and we're starting to play a numbers game here. So the number of colonists is going down. The number of aliens that are hatching is going up. And eventually they get enough numbers that they start attacking in numbers. And that's why they're building barricades and everything else like that. And it's a last stand. And then we see from later on when the Colonial Marines show up that 
the last stand was basically, you know, they managed to wound some, maybe they even managed to kill some, but most of the colonists got captured. They weren't killed. They were taken to the to the cooling tower, entombed, and the alien population basically replaced the uh, the whole settler population population. So that's how I see it happening. So because we're dealing with over 150 aliens. Okay. Go ahead, Bracey. Thoughts on how that scenario could have played out once Newt's family comes back to the colony and he's face up. How do we get from that to the last stand? Uh, well, very likely the first victim plays out very much like it did on the Stromo. Uh, they don't know what they're dealing with. Chestburster happens. Chestburster gets away. Chestburster matures into a full-grown alien warrior. Uh like Nemesis, uh, I think this creature had one of two options, especially since we can't count on the deleted scene from Alien being canon, seeing what Ridley, uh, seeing what uh, Cameron did with the film. Uh, so I'm of a similar mind that it runs back. These things are very fast, very powerful, and it starts moving eggs to a prime location that suits its purposes, but is not within the colony itself. Because you'll notice that even after the colony is defeated. Uh, the colony is not transformed into a hive. There's no bioorganic resin all over the place. They saved that for the cooling tower. However, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that once the uh, alien itself started establishing a colony, that um, we know that the face facehuggers can be active outside of the egg once they're activated. Mm-hmm. So there's two possibilities here, and I think this one might actually be a better possibility. Uh, it could have moved uh, a few eggs into the colony itself. This would allow the colonists to eventually get a hold of a few face huggers, a few chest bursters, that sort of thing. I think it's actually a little bit more likely uh, that it could have encouraged the face huggers to uh, hatch onto itself, and then it runs them in, because that's a lot less cumbersome than carrying you know, a three-foot egg with you. Even for creatures as powerful as a full-grown xenomorph. Hmm. Um, there is a possibility that uh, you definitely want a, a certain maturation within the body before the chest burster. Uh, we saw with Kane that he needed uh, a substantial amount of food as nutrients were being drawn from his body. Uh, this is just speculation on my part. I haven't read anything outside of the expanded material. Uh, in the expanded material that might say this, but uh, I think it's possible that if... Uh, the chest burster is allowed a, a certain level of maturation from its like you know tadpole state uh, that if the victim dies it might just start cannibalizing the body that's around it mm-hmm. and uh, still have a still have a possibility of chest bursting out of that but that's speculation on my part no that, I did find that, it, that happens in the comics they actually grow clone bodies that are headless and sometimes okay. torsos but they launch chest versus out of those. So that's definitely. Oh, that's right, boy. It's been a while since I read that stuff. Yeah. But yeah, but I'm, but I'm talking about a body that's actually deceased. So oh, like if they yeah. if they tried to take the face hugger off and it killed the victim, uh-huh. uh, you know, uh, protein is protein. Uh, <laughs> and you, you've got you've got so many hours, uh, you know, it takes the body a long time to die on a cellular level. So there's still good material in there to uh, feed off of. I, I know we don't like to talk about this movie, but Alien 3, did a xenomorph come out of a dead cow or something? No. The that, was in the, that was in the original scene. It was supposed to be a, a, a cattle as opposed no, to a dog. An ox. 
Yeah. Okay. And, and it was an alien queen face hugger. It was black, bigger and longer, and it had webs between the claws. Yeah, it was real nasty looking. But they threw that out, and then they had to come out of the dog. So yeah, I so the stuck with the original idea. Yeah, my idea, my idea is that single alien has to establish the colony, and has to infiltrate, because it needs uh, uh, possibly one other alien to progenerate a queen. Or uh, in the games, uh, they do have uh, queens can metamorphosize out of. Uh, and, you know, it's the game, so how canon is that? But like, if you're uh, when you play uh, aliens versus predators versus marines, uh, one of the options you get you get a couple of different classes of aliens. And if you survive long enough as an alien, you keep evolving until you can become a queen. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. And that's that's kind of a cool concept. They're like, you know, if, if one really hardy alien can uh, can go the distance, or if it can get another alien going, so they can start swapping the old uh, royal jelly to get a queen going. Yeah. So that's my thoughts because uh, I hadn't thought about that before because you raised an interesting point that uh, how did those get in there, and that just made me think about like. You know, none of this place got uh got covered in the alien resin, so I'm 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 leaning toward my infiltration idea, bringing in a few face huggers on its own. Well, they are definitely smart, strong, and fast enough mm -hmm. to do that, and their goal is survival and reproduction through any means necessary. Very very true. Okay, now we're going to move the conversation to what I found out was a controversial character, and that's Newt. I didn't know. Some people didn't like Newt. Uh, and so we're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about does a kid ruin the movie? And we're going to talk about PTSD. So number one, now I personally have talked to Carrie on Twitter and she's so cool. This is the only <laughs> thing she ever made. So after she played Newt, she just went on and became a teacher and got married, had her kids and had a life. So she shows up at the alien conventions and she's so cool. She interacts with the fans and She's tired of people saying, you know, they mostly come at night mostly because it's been 40 years. So I can't blame her for that. But uh, so I try not to say stuff like that to her because everybody says that to you and everybody thinks they're so clever. Can you imagine being 12 and hear that line for 30 years? Anyway. So but a lot of people, you know, we hate the kid and we're glad she you know, died. Spoiler alert, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, how could you hate Newt? I didn't get that. So I want to hear your thoughts on does the kid ruin the movie? Because most of the time. In most films, it does. When we've had a long-running show or really hot movie, and then you introduce a kid like Superman Returns, it's like, oh. But in this case, Newt is at the heart of the story. She's part of the spawn. So I was surprised to find that some people didn't like her being there, one. Number two, we're going to move segue into PTSD along these lines. Uh, you have to think about uh, because PTSD is all over this movie. Ripley saw one chest burster. Newt saw multiple people chest bursting. Think about what it must have looked like from that little girl's point of view to see her father die and then her brother and her mom and all the other adults. Now, her little cubby hole, I thought that was visually brilliant because what I thought was two things. First thing I thought was that there's a garbage smell that masked her scent and there's the fan so the aliens could never quite catch a good whiff of the fact she was there and that's how she was able to hide but i'm just imagining being this little girl and, and all the adults around you die horribly 
And we talked about before we went on air about how she had that thousand yard stare and how what she had to have seen because she was bleak when we meet her newt is like ripley's like these people are soldiers they're here to help you and it was like it won't make any difference <laughs> <laughs> so let me hear your thoughts about two things is number one the sci-fi trope or fantasy trope was does a kid ruin a movie and number two let's talk about what we determined was the biggest carrier of ptsd in the film which is newt herself uh, go ahead. Let me start with Nemesis. Um, yeah, let me tackle the first one first. Uh, does a kid ruin a movie? Not always, but the reason that kids almost always do ruin movies is because of writers. Because writers write the kids as being not real kids. They write them as being snarky pains in the ass. You know? <laughs> so, you know, and... Um, and they don't write them believably. They don't give them real reactions to real things going on around them. You know, kids, uh, yes, kids react differently than adults sometimes. Sometimes they, they take things better than adults sometimes. Sometimes they're better able to survive and cope with stuff than adults can. You know, it's a weird thing with children. And so often, uh, writers write children as they don't even write them two-dimensionally sometimes they write them one-dimensionally you know they use them uh as just a stand-in to to sit there and do something and they don't explore you know how is a kid going to react to this what is a kid going to think about something like this you know and that is one of the things that i think why in my opinion newt is a wonderful character because i think she's a believable character you know yeah you might have been a little bit annoyed at, at the things she said or whatever i've heard people say the same stuff I, I think you're being harsh but you know what the kid is emotionally dead inside which goes to your second point which is ptsd mm -hmm. um you know most often for me i associate ptsd with military stuff because you've seen horrible things or whatever and and that's a a failing on my part because it's not unique to the military it just happens more in that profession in certain instances but uh you know and i brought that up a little bit that i was going to bring it up um i i understand and i'm going to do a little bit of sharing here and i don't i don't mind sharing um i had to go see a professional for this kind of stuff and it started early on it wasn't just my military career even though i saw it but i mean the first time i had a knife drawn on me and held to my throat i was seven uh the first time i had a gun drawn on me i was 11. the first time i saw someone die die horribly i was 15 and three girls that i knew in front of me we were sitting and we stopped for a train and a runaway rail car came down derailed and beheaded all three of them right in front of me oh my god uh uh you know and it just goes from there i mean i when i was at airborne school i saw an airborne instructor burn in from 1500 feet and hit the ground you know all of that does something to you that is very and makes me relate to newt because it you know, people react in all sorts of different ways. But for me, um, you become dead inside. 
you don't feel anything and you have no um for a long time there the only work i had for myself you know my life i figured i was going to be dead by age 30 so i just was resolved to it and didn't care and uh my wife was the only person that i thought it was worthwhile living for and so that's why i had to go see a professional and i and i know i'm doing a lot of sharing here but and that's what newt would have had to deal with too because you've already figured you've seen it you're gonna die you're gonna die horribly at some point so you've shut yourself off from everything and everyone and so and to open yourself up again is to feel that pain and that's kind of what ptsd does it's your way your mind's way of coping with horrible things and coping with it mentally and everybody deals with it differently but what is really about is is coping with your own mortality and knowing that you've seen some horrible stuff and so that's why i really identify with newt here because she has got that look i know exactly where she is she has that empty feeling inside she has and and you don't want to uh open up to anyone and i just see how she's very hesitant at first to open up to ripley because it's like I know exactly what she's thinking. She's like, I'm going to open up and you're just going to die too. You know, mm -hmm. you're just going to die too. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's definitely understandable. It's definitely believable. And it's definitely not a military thing. It can happen for to all sorts of people for all sorts of reasons. Um, and it doesn't even have to be death, all, you know, that it can happen too. So it's, it's a serious thing. And uh, I would just say, you know, I don't want to get off on the whole PTS or PSA here, but you know, if you feel like that, don't be afraid to go get help. It's not a sign of weakness at all. You know, well, I agree completely. Uh, uh, without going into too much detail, um, <clears throat> I I had a rough childhood too, but for me, it was always fighting. So I've been fighting since I was very, very, very little boy. Fighting, fighting around me, just having to fight stuff, and after a while. It does do something to you psychologically and you do need to have somebody help you work through that or whatever because you adjust to it you begin to expect you think well this is the way life is so i can relate to that as well because especially when you're young and impressionable like that and uh something happens to your psyche when you kick into survival mode there the way the brain and the psychology of the human is wired there's something that every living thing has which is that deep desire to survive. But when you kick, kick in there, other things are deadened. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like you said, you can't afford to open up and feel, especially when it's in survival mode. And I have been there uh, more than one time in my life as well to where I was like, you know, we just have to make it. And that's different from, you know, laughing, skipping and blah, blah, blah. And, um, so I can relate to everything you're saying because as far back as I can remember, it's been like that. And so that's why I, I also vibe with Newt as well. I was like, I understand this little girl completely, man. She's doing what she needs to do. She's being smarter than the adults around her. She's working with what she's got, which is her size. And like I said, I think of the smell because they established in the deleted scene that she's small enough to fit in the vents, which comes right. into play in the movie. But with that smell and with that fan, she was smart enough to say, I've got to get away from where they can sense me, which I thought was brilliant. I don't know if that was cognitive, but, you know, 
So I thought she was great. So I, I don't get the hatred and I can relate to that kind of trauma. And another thing I'll just throw out, then I'll throw it to Steve. Um, and this is gonna sound funny, but it's really funny when you're in a situation as a kid and the adults around you don't get what situation they're in. They don't get what's happening. Uh, that's a pet peeve of mine, which is why whenever I work with kids, I try to be sensitive to them because I remember what that feels like. So whenever I'm working with kids, I'm always trying to be sensitive. People think that just because you're young, your feelings aren't real. That's not true. You're just young. That's not the same as your feelings not being real. And when you're in a situation where the adults around you are just in over their heads, that's what Newt feels like to me. She got it, and that's why she survived. I'll, I'll take it one step further for you, and, and I've seen this a lot um, with my wife's class and also when we go out and volunteer to help. When the parents, you know, the parents or the adults around you don't have control of the situation, that itself could cause PTSD-like symptoms in children because mm -hmm. children need stability, you know, and when they don't have stability and they have to provide it for themselves, that is traumatizing for a child, you know? Yes, 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 yes. Because you have to mentally step into a role that you're not supposed to be in yet. That's right. Go ahead, Steve. Thoughts on... Does a kid ruin a movie? Is that a legit sci-fi trope? And the depth of Newt's PTSD? Uh, does a kid ruin a movie? Not necessarily. I mean, there have been several movies where the kid has really made the movie. I mean, I keep thinking of The Sixth Sense and how Haley Joel Osment, who was, what, eight at the time, you know, was absolutely a fixture in the movie. Now, that keeping in mind that not many kids that age are going to be really great actors, um, but that's not their fault. I mean, they're they're young. I mean, there's, they're, they're doing the best they can, but they're young, they're inexperienced. You know, they, they don't have, like, years of experience to draw on the way that adult actors do. So, mm -hmm. you know, you have some that have real natural talent, and when you find them, you embrace them. And if not, I mean, I think you have to give them a certain amount of slack. Uh, I, I feel like, you know, I feel bad for Jake Lloyd because he's still, you know, getting uh, nonsense hurled at him because of uh, he was playing young Anakin. Are you an angel? Well, you know, that's George Lucas's fault. That's not Jake Lloyd's fault, you know. Um, right. a, a lot of it is the writing. And, and I feel like, yeah. Um, Newt as a character, I don't think I got at first. Um, and, like, she was just kind of okay to me. I didn't really have any strong feelings, like, the first couple times I watched her. Um, but like, you know, coming back to it every so often, I kind of got a sense that, you know, this kid knows more about what's going on than any of the adults do. Uh, I do relate to that. Um, when I was really, really young, um, I, 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 I don't know. I was very much somebody who sat and watched and observed quietly, but I kind of had more of a sense of what was going on than anybody really thought I did uh, at the time. And I think Newt did a lot of the same thing. I think she was somebody, you know, who paid attention uh, she might not necessarily say anything, but she knows. And and you can definitely see that she was doing that, um, you know, during the attack uh, by the Xenomorphs and, and, and all of this, when she was watching everything go crazy. She was watching what the adults were doing that got them killed, and she learned from them. Um, I, I, I do respect that. And, you know, she was able to find that hiding spot. And, you know, she took advantage of the ventilation ducts, and she took advantage of her size. And... Um, I don't think she necessarily um, was necessarily consciously thinking about it in that much depth. I think it was just 
I got to do something, you know, to get away from this thing. And um, I'm going to go and not do what the adults are doing. Um, and this is why, I mean, she's like, okay, yeah, um, you know, it, it doesn't matter that they're soldiers. You know, these things are going to get them because what has been her experience up to this point? The adults have all failed her. So why should she have any feel any faith in the adults to save her? Uh, not none, not really. So I, I completely get that. Uh, to the extent of the trauma, I, I think I'm going to defer more to you people. Um, I, I mean, I definitely had my moments of trauma, and I can definitely see where that's coming in the new character as well. But I, I don't know. I think that a lot of the new character, it's not necessarily about her per se. I think it's about what Ripley sees in her and what she takes away from her and how she bonds with her. Because Ripley sees herself in Newt. Um, you know, she sees the, the person that she was on the Nostromo. You know, she see, and she, in, in addition to having just lost her, you know, daughter, found out that her daughter was gone. Uh, so there, there's a little bit of that. And I think she's, they're bonding over this shared trauma, which is they both see, saw their family wiped out by this horrible monster. And, and so, you know, uh, Newt, uh, I think, sees that Ripley um, is definitely empathizing with her more, understands her situation better. And she's definitely more competent than any of the other adults in the room. So she grows to trust Ripley for that reason. And Ripley, you know, is seeing her younger self, you know, the person on the Nostromo, you know, who got her innocence taken away by a chestburster, you know, jumping out of Kane's body <laughs> and all the horrible things she had to deal with on the Nostromo. So um, I can definitely see why that relationship formed, you know, why Newt is so important to her because, you know, she's not just saving the, this replacement goldfish for her daughter. She's seeing herself and her past self in this child. And it's like, I'm going to save myself, you know, this person that I was. I'm not going to have the same thing happen to her that happened to Dallas and to Kane and, and to all these other people that, that I lost. You know, I, I'm, I, you know I'm, going to, I'm going to make sure that she comes out of this okay, even if it means dying myself. I don't care, you know, if I die as long as this child comes away from it. And I think that that, that bonding, that shared experience... Um, is what's so important. And I, I don't think that this movie would be what it is without Newt. Um, in addition, that the conflict with the alien queen is based on that shared experience. They're both mothers trying to protect their kids. You know, yeah. So if you don't have a child character for, for Ripley to take care of, that completely goes out the window. So yeah, you need Newt. I mean, whatever you may think of her, you know, her importance to Ripley's character matters. And you know, and I think that Newt also does grow. She gets out of her shell as well. You know, she learns to trust the, these people. She learns to form new familial relationships, not just with Newt, but also with Hicks. I mean, we see that she starts to trust Hicks as well uh, on a more subtle level. So, yeah, I would say that, all, no, Newt is a vital part of this movie. I mean, whatever you may think of her. She even bonds with, with Hudson to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah. yeah Although I do have to ask, what do you mean by you people? Come on, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Privilege, man. Privilege. <laughs> okay, uh, go ahead, Bracey. Does uh, a kid ruin a movie? Is that a legit sci-fi trope? And the level of Newt's PTSD? The problem is that a kid can ruin a movie. And in general, most cases, that's not the kid's fault. Uh, for instance, uh, like you mentioned, Jake Lloyd... Uh, he was put in a uh, what could have been it could have been a more complex uh, role, but let's not go there because we saw what uh, Lucas kind of did with Anakin throughout. Uh, although there's 
there's reasons for what he did here and there. So uh, that's that's a pot for another day. Uh, but you know, but that kid's not a particularly uh, great actor. He's no Haley Joel Osment. Uh, nothing against Jake Lloyd, but you know, who knows why he might have developed into. And he's he's certainly not one of the McCulkin kids who proved to be uh, quite apt talents at a very young age, or even uh, children like the Olsen twins. And I I think back. Uh, uh, to another great movie that had uh, a couple of child actors in it who performed uh, really well, and that was Poltergeist uh, by Toby Hooper, which was executive produced by Steven Spielberg, who is apparently the man when it comes to getting the most out of children in a film. So yeah, it just really depends on the the child, the part, and the direction. So. Uh, you know, when it works, it works. Uh, the Sixth Sense is absolutely brilliant uh, because of that. And as you guys have already stated, this would not be the same movie at all without Newt. It yeah. changes everything not to have Newt. And I don't understand why anybody uh, who watches the film can't see that. She is pivotal. Uh, pivotal. She's pivotal. Yes. Uh, she's she's every bit as important to as Ripley in the film because Ripley is not going to be worth a damn without Newt. She's got nothing really to live for without Newt. Uh, so in, in the, the actress playing Newt uh, was terrific. I mean, she really sold it. She's an exceptionally good actor for a child that age. And uh, she just really sold all the aspects of it, the, the horror, the trauma, everything. And, you know, we, of course, like we all love the, uh, the line, you know, they mostly come at night mostly you know the just the delivery and the look and everything and we actually get to see her as uh you guys point out we get to see her warm up to people and not just one person she just doesn't desperately cling to one person like a a drowning person grabbing a, a life preserver she starts to believe uh that these people are going to be around uh, that she can form attachments because it's it's like nemesis said this girl like, oh yeah, you're soldiers, whatever. You're all gonna die. I've seen everybody <laughs> die. Everybody has died. I have seen everybody die. Mm-hmm. How can I believe you're not gonna die? You know, that's that's trauma right there. Uh, I had my my own bouts of PTSD, but they never got uh, such extreme as that. A a childhood um, thing growing up uh, caused me to be very very angry, and then a a more recent thing. Uh, left me uh, shockingly dealing with fear for a couple of months. Uh, so I've, I've seen two different reactions. But because it wasn't a sustained thing like Nemesis or Newt Face, I never got to that dead inside sort of feeling where like it just doesn't matter. You've got to suffer a lot of trauma to get to that sort of level of situation. And Newt's seen that. She has seen everybody she knows for all we know she was born in the installation everybody she knows is gone and um do we have a frame of reference for how long you know, like they lost contact with the uh with the uh the uh no, that's that's one of the holes it's it's hard to see you have to go back and look at the extras because once burke found out about mm-hmm. the derelict ship from ripley's report yeah, I don't recall how long they said they'd, they'd been out of contact, but it yeah. was... He sends two family out there to investigate once he finds out. So the scene at the beginning when Ripper's in the corporate boardroom explaining to mm-hmm. the speech what happened, that's Bert finding out about the derelict ship, and then he sends news family out there after that. 
So yeah, we know, and we know there, that it had to have been at least a month because Ripley was seeing a psychologist, and she had mentioned, "Yeah, I've already done my monthly report for that." So she yeah. may have done at least a couple of a monthly reports. Or okay, I was I was thinking the time frame would have been at least a couple of months. Uh, that, there's also there's a scene yeah. with Hudson where he's melting down, and uh, they talk about how long it's going to take before they get rescued. And I think it's like 17 days or something like that. Yeah, 17 days. Yeah, yeah I was about yeah. to say. And as well, and, like space travel long enough, they they had to go into hypersleep. So there's and, that. And Ripley tells them that that Newt survived, and I forget. I think it's like four times longer than that on her own. So yeah, you're okay. talking a couple months, something like so, that. So yeah, that's a that's an extraordinary amount of time for a child uh, to deal with all of this. And, uh, you know, the, the young pl lady played it off admirably, uh, especially with Cameron's direction and the setup. You know, it was just a, a real tour de force there. Um, and you also see you see her progression. You were talking about her. Yeah, like up, you but, but that first time you meet her, you know, you've got that one touching scene with Ripley where mm -hmm. she's like, oh, there's a girl underneath. But she, Ripley, she's catatonic at that point, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I, I like it. The. And that scene works so much because, you know, I, I like the fact like, oh, you know, Ripley, you got to go in. Nobody else is small enough to crawl through the tunnels. But like, uh, I tried to, I tried to capture a, uh, a feral kitten one time. And, uh, you know, even though you've got the best intentions for this animal, uh, it doesn't know that. And, uh, especially if it's been out in the wild and it's programmed, uh, you know, it's, it's been out there long enough that all its instincts screams like anything bigger than me is danger. Mm -hmm. And even though Newt recognizes these are human beings, they're speaking and you know, maybe like you said, she's a little catatonic. Maybe she's not even hearing language until Ripley can catch up with her. Nobody else would be able to get next to that kid. It, it took somebody with a soft touch and somebody who knew how to reach out to a child. Yes. Ripley would do because she was a mother. Mm -hmm. uh, and that makes that scene just all the richer because of that, because, you know, uh, even somebody as surprisingly sympathetic as an Android, like Bishop, uh, just would not have been able to kind of like, you know, quietly, logically talk his way into that girl's confidence. It took somebody who knew how to reach a child and, uh, that makes for a terrific moment. And so, uh, those of you out there, writers, directors, uh, producers, all that sort of thing, write your kids smart, just like you write your adult uh, characters, and you won't hear any of these complaints about kids ruining movies. I, if I could just add one thing real quick. You know, we no. <laughs> what you're saying about Ripley is so true, and, mm -hmm. and, and I got to go back to what I was saying about strong female characters, and I think that Cameron does that so well here because there are three female characters here well there's four because we're going to include newt too but all of them are strong in their own ways you have the pilot of the dropship i can't remember her name who all, is all i remember is all i remember is her calling out stinkmeyer that's the name that sticks yeah me. yeah and then <laughs> yeah. you've got you got vasquez you know who is awesome but she's not you know she's a different kind of woman she's a strong woman but she's not a female, you know, a very feminine woman. She's a female, but she's not ultra feminine, you know, motherly. She's a different kind of woman. You got Newt, who's the young child, but she's a survivor. You know, she's a strong female character. 
And then you got Ripley, who's a survivor and strong character, but she's all but she's a different kind of woman. You've yeah, got just, uh, look at Cameron. That's, that's uh, a yeah. Cameron. This is what he he goes for. I mean, like yeah. you've got Kate Winslet in Titanic, who's going against the social mores of the time. Yeah. Uh, you've got, of course, Linda Hamilton in Terminator. Uh, yeah. uh, you've got Natiri in Avatar. Yeah, uh, you know, this is a this is a thing for him. Like, and years ago, he oh, wanted yeah. to make the film Battle Angel Alita, but he still produced it. Yeah. He's all about a strong female character, and he knows how to do them right. But, but I guess my point is, is that women don't have to be in a pigeonhole in order yeah. to be a strong female character. You know, and and that's one of the things I think that we really regressed as a society, where it's like if you want to uh, be a strong female character, she's got to be. You they know, all have to be Vasquez. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. Or Captain Marvel, you know. So, <laughs> well, I don't see yeah, that. That's really <laughs> funny. That's another can of worms because <laughs> whenever I hear the phrase "strong female character," I'm asking myself because some things are strength because they're strength, mm -hmm. and then there are some things that are masculine energy, and there's some things that are more feminine energy, and so. Whenever I hear that, it always strikes me as a funny phrase as a writer because I'm like, you wouldn't say strong male character. But so, so some items are specifically masculine. Some items are strong, like, for example, resilience, mm. perseverance, determination. That's not gender specific. Do you know what I mean? So, But yeah. that's another thing. But that, that phrase always, that's another oh, I, a head scratcher for me. Absolutely. And masculine and feminine traits have nothing to do, mo you know, they don't have to have anything to do with biology. You know, there are many effeminate men, there are very many emasculate women, and that's fine, you know. And I think that's wonderful when people write them that way. And I think that's one of the things that I love that Cameron did here is that we have the whole gamut of, of different of women, the different traits, different strengths and personalities. And the same thing with the men. I mean, look at one of my favorite characters here, and I'm sure we're going to talk about him, is Hudson. Yes. Hudson's outstanding, and Hudson is not your typical action hero. But I love him in this. And when push comes to shove, Hudson stepped up, too. So okay, that. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to get to that. Okay, this next one, this is just a quick one, is directed at Bracey and Nemesis. Just a quick one. I want to hear your thoughts. <clears throat> when Gorman orders them to put down their automatic weapons and go to flamethrowers only because they're underneath the cooling unit and the whole thing's a nuclear power plant. Did any of that make sense? If they had to infiltrate the area and because Vasquez just gave him her first clip and then she had a secret clip, she just popped that in because she was ready to rock and roll. Did it make sense in terms of giving the orders for the troops to end that situation, to give up their automatics and semi-automatics and all that, and flamethrowers only, would that have happened realistically? Or was that just another example of stupid people doing stupid things to make the movie work? Uh, Bracey first. Given the um, given the scenario that we're there in, there is a risk, and it ends up proving valid that the containment is breached on the reactor. And that puts them in a really difficult situation for the rest that of the That was because of the ship crash, not the weapons. We don't know that for sure. No, they yeah, do they say either they do, and it was either in the film or the novelization 
there is a point where they say like we don't know if it's a stray round or if it was a ship crash so we can't say 100 percent one way or the other i'm inclined to believe it's more the ship crash um uh, the smart, the smart weapons in particular have a, uh, a heavy duty core to them. Uh, their armor piercing as well as tracking, uh, that Vasquez and Drake carried. So there's pretty serious things, but, uh, I understand it, uh, from the standpoint of, uh, somebody who was an officer. Uh, I almost thought about being an officer myself at a time, uh, but I, I didn't pursue that angle. Uh, so there's there's things you have to consider. Uh, you've got to look at a bigger picture where, of course, the, the guy on the ground, he's got to look at two things, completing the mission and surviving. Uh, that's the most important objectives for him. So in a way, I actually don't blame either side. As a matter of fact, if it was me, uh, I would have probably had a spare magazine or two that I would have. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Here's here's my mag. I'm cool. Like, and I got this just in case, because you know you're going in with flame units, uh, not knowing what sort of creature, 100% you're dealing with, and they they didn't 100% kind of like uh, uh, take uh, uh, Ellen seriously. Uh, oh, you know. They tried to explain if I can the interject for one second. Um, sure. Hicks actually did exactly what you said, which is why he took the shotgun. Yeah, I'm not going to give you that. This is what, in case something really goes wrong. So, yeah, you're right on that. Yeah. He said, I'd like to keep this handy for close encounters. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's that, and you know, so Vasquez and Drake aren't the only ones. You know, a couple guys took that initiative. Uh, because uh, as a soldier, I'm thinking, okay, you know, I've got to deal with this. I've got to be mindful of that. But at the same time, I'm thinking, uh, now I have significantly reduced firepower. I have significantly reduced range. And the closer the enemy can get to me, even if they're a hand-to-hand combatant, that's still not very good for me. I don't know. Uh, these things are uh, beings with chitinous shells. I don't know how the fire is actually going to affect them. We never had any proof of how effective fire was in the first movie. Uh, so for all I know, they can burn a while and still maul me. You know, in an instant, it's not like a human who's got all these nerve endings right up on the surface of our skin that we go fire is bad right away. We don't know how this affects any of those. But uh, I know if I was one of those guys, I would put my faith in some uh, some high energy rounds uh, impacting a creature at a high velocity. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I see it both ways. Uh, I understand uh, that Gorman was doing the best he could. It kind of reminds me of a situation where he had some uh, no offense, nemesis. Uh, we had some uh, we had some West Point cadets come in to uh, do some leadership training while we were going through our uh, our boot camp, and uh, ours wasn't very good. And uh, you know the the DI was telling us like you know some of these guys are pretty good soldiers. Unfortunately, yours is as green as the grass out there. <laughs> so so not not all soldiers are made equal. Unfortunately, despite the same training. Uh, but yeah, I can totally see it uh, working both ways. I. If, if I was in the leadership position, even understanding the uh, volatility of where they were at, I think overall I would probably err on the side of bringing my men home. I would give them the best options possible. And, you know, if I have to follow an order, I will I will follow the order. Oh, okay, here's my ammo, but I've got my backup just in case because, you know, you don't know everything, especially seeing how green Gorman was. All right, Nemesis, same question. Was that a legit order given the situation, or was that another case of 
stupid people doing stupid things to make the plot work. See, I, I see it from a different standpoint than Jeff because I was an officer. Um, I have given orders. You know, I, I've been a lieutenant. And, uh, yeah, when you're a new butter bar, you know jack shit about anything. So, you know, the only people saving you are your sergeant. And then eventually yeah, you see get Yeah, you're mm -hmm. and you get experience. And if you're an officer worth the salt for the first six months on the job, you are basically listening to that little voice in your ear, which is your NCO, you know? Yeah, and Hippone yeah, is definitely, that's a Gorman. You can definitely tell that Hippone knows everything that's going on. He's the guy on the ground. He knows how he's dealing with all these guys. And Gorman is just sitting there clueless, you know, and not knowing what he's doing. He is the second lieutenant with a map. And yeah. he knows nothing. I mean, our, our DI told us the very same thing. He's like, look, some of you guys are going to go be officers. And when you are, listen to your MCOs. Yeah. Yeah. All right. On the other hand, and this is where I'm going to kind of go a little bit different. Uh, I agree with Jeff. My first responsibility, well, no, I don't necessarily completely agree with him. My first responsibility, and this is going to sound terrible, but to the mission. is the mission, right? The mission is the first. So that trumps the lives of my soldiers. It trumps my life. It trumps everything. Now, I want to get my soldiers home. I want to get myself home. But the first thing I got to do is accomplish the mission. Second is the soldiers. So they're right there, you know. So I'm looking at it as Gorman, and I'm suddenly told that there's a possibility that I'm going to blow this whole damn planet up with my soldiers down there. If they fire, I'm giving that order, you know, the same way he does. I'm giving that same exact order. Here's the problem. Gorman has no respect from his troops. Yeah. When I give an order, if you, you're going to follow that order, you know, which is why if I give an order, it's like daddy speaking at home. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, that's exactly what it's like in a platoon. In a military, mama is the NCO, is the platoon sergeant. That's your mama. Your daddy is the platoon leader. Daddy doesn't speak all the time, and Daddy doesn't know everything that's going on. The one that's running the show, for the most part, is Mama. But when Daddy comes in and speaks, you listen to Daddy. You do what Daddy says, you know. And and I'm sorry if that sounds sexist to everybody. I apologize, but I'm just trying to make an analogy here. But, you know, so that's the way it is. So even as a butter bar that doesn't know what's going on, I may have information that you don't. I may have information on the mission that you don't. I may know about, let's say, uh, you want to, you know, I'll give you a tactical situation that I, I dealt with. This was in training. This was in real life. But, you know, I've got a, a platoon and we're, we're fighting and we're about to be flanked and, and we want to retreat. But I know that in the exercise, they're going to lay napalm down where we will retreat past. So if my guys go through there, there's a good chance they would end up being dead. Now, I don't have time to explain to you all the ins and outs of everything that's going on and the whole tactical picture and everything, all the information I know. All I can tell you is that, no, we're holding here and we're not retreating. You know, when I give that order, there's a reason I'm giving that order. And my men respected me enough to know that if I gave an order, they may not like it. I don't ask them to like it. 
They may not agree with it. I don't ask them to agree with it. What I demand is that they do it. So, you know, so that's pretty much, I guess that's the way I see it. So, but there, then you hit on the key difference right there. I think if, if the Marines had had uh, an officer with them that they'd been working with for a time, had allowed, you know, this guy had gained the respect and he, you know, he'd been in the shit with them for a while. And that's the problem is like Gorman is that, that green guy, you know, like he hasn't earned it yet. And so it not gets a little bit to them. And plus, not only, not only that, he's a, excuse my language again, but now I'm getting into military mode again. Gorman's a douche, you know, it's like, you know, but from the very moment, he, says that, yeah. He, yeah. He, yeah. Acts, he acts arrogant and like he's better than everybody else because he's got a damn bar on his shoulder. And we've got, right. we've, we, we live in the world of aliens here where we know that uh, there's always a lot of corporate shenanigans going on. Corporations seem to rule over every aspect of Earth, including the military operations. And uh, there was actually a, uh, in the expanded material, they actually, uh, somebody wrote a story detailing what their previous bug hunt was about. And you saw some of that play out where, uh, you know, Somebody in one of the corporations had found this life form they wanted, and the Marines had to go out there, and they, they introduced a couple of characters who aren't with the team now because they die on this mission. Uh, they find a life form that is uh, methane-based. Uh, so they go out there, and they're, you know, they're trying to bring these things down while they're looking for this, uh, this new element they're looking for, which turns out to be the creatures, uh, because they explode when you shoot them. And then they find out after this thing has killed two of their members They've got to go back out there and now capture one of these things. And they do it because they're soldiers and they're good soldiers. But they sure as hell don't like it. And they didn't like not being completely informed on the situation. Right. And and, and that's part of leadership, too. I mean, yeah. I mean there's so much in, that goes into it. I mean, that's more time than we have. But basically, uh, you know, I, I agree with Gorman's decision. But Gorman's failure and the failure there comes from you know, it goes all the way back to that scene where he's briefing everybody. He has no respect for his troops. He hasn't won their respect or their loyalty at all. And you could do that even as a new lieutenant, just by the way you treat your troops. Yeah, you may yeah. be green, but your demeanor, uh, I, I will say one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life was 20 years later, running into one of my former soldiers who recognized me and came up to me and said, and called me, sir. Sir, you are one of the best officers I ever served under, period. And and giving me that respect still when he had he didn't need you. We're both civilians. So cool. All right. Now that's a good segue into this movie is full of moments and this movie is full of reveals. So there's at least two we're gonna talk about, but I want to talk about the first one now. The first big reveal is the betrayal. So we find out the level of slime Burke has been sliding on basically since we meet him because he comes in on the slime slide. And so he sent Newt's family out to the derelict ship. He authorized what was going on. When Ripley confronts him about him, he goes, look, those two specimens are worth millions to the bioweapons division. Now, if you're smart, we can both come out of this rich and we'll be set up for life. And Ripley's like, don't you understand what you've done here? These people are dead, Burke. And, <laughs> he's, like, and he's like, 
Well, you know, I made a bad call. I mean, she says, don't you understand? We shouldn't have the bad call part. Like I made a bad call, but if I made a lot of noise about it, the administration steps in, everybody steps in, there's no exclusive rights for anyone. Just so, just such a corporate bureaucrat, self-centered, narcissistic, you know, I want my rights, I want to patent these killing machines kind of thing. That was brilliantly written and executed. And Ripley's like, you know, then she's like, I'm going to see your nail right to the wall for this. So, uh, and then we see that betrayal just keep on rolling forward all the way out to the movie till Bert gets taken out. And of course, there's a deleted scene for those of you that don't know where Ripley meets him later and he's cocooned to the wall. And I think she mercy kills him, I think, or maybe she leaves him. She gives him a, she gives him a grenade. Okay, yeah, 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 okay. So that actually didn't make it into the movie, but they did film it because we've seen stills of it. But anyway, so let's talk about that betrayal. I mean, it's just on so many different levels. It's inhuman. It's totally corporate. It's, you know, worth millions to the bioweapons division. That that phrase never leaves me mm. because, because that's the way he saw it. And he's willing to sacrifice everybody and their mama to make that happen. And he did it for a percentage. And Ripley says that, and he does it for exclusive rights. The reason that resonates with me is because I understand from what I do, what I do in my other life is I'm a music person. So I'm an artist, a music business person. I'm a consultant. I do all that. And I understand what happens when real money gets on the table. When real money gets on the table, that's why I teach all my students about using split sheets. Split sheets are where you decide who gets what percentage of the song as you write it. Hmm. Everybody signs it, and then we all get copies. Because what will happen if the song blows up is all of a sudden the drummer's going to claim, well, that's all me. I wrote 90% of the song. And bass player will be like, no, I wrote that line. It's that kind of thing. It's a mess. That's why bands break up. So I teach all my students to use split sheets. So I can relate when he said that exclusive rights line. I was like, I, I get this guy. It's like toy sales. He's like, these things are toy sales, toy sales and I'm going to own the rights and I'm going to be rich. And Ripley, if you're smart, you can get on this cash cow with me. And I'm just like, it's just brilliant. You hate this guy because you get him. And you probably know people like that. And I've definitely been sitting in situations like that, you know, where, you know, that's why you have to learn how to use NDAs and, you know, just so many different things because mm -hmm. that kind of stuff will happen if you come up on a multi-million dollar idea and not to rant too much, but I am kind of ranting. You know, how did they do Stan Lee? Stan Lee, if you didn't know, was supposed to get 10% of all Spider-Man proceeds, especially from the movies. He had to sue them because they would not pay that man, the creator of Spider-Man, mind you, the royalties do him. So he's supposed to get a dime out of every dollar. And Spider-Man is still, the last time I checked, the most merchandised character in the world, worldwide. Nobody's merchandised more than Spidey. No books, lunchboxes, movies, video games, T-shirts. Just if there's merch, there's Spider-merch. And I don't know if his deal is that broad, but I know it covered the movies. He, they wouldn't even give him that. And Jack Kirby, we can do Jack Kirby. We can talk about what happened to his estate. And, and it just and Siegel and Schuster and on and on and on. If they had known what Superman was, they wouldn't have sold him for 130 bucks. 130 bucks. Okay. So the point I'm trying to make is that Burke betrayal is so true to life. It's so real. So I want to hear your thoughts about that whole thing, about the whole betrayal, about his attitude, about Ripley's response. Then he lets the face huggers out on Ripley and Newt because he's going to sneak them home frozen with the 
alien all in the lungs. I was like, oh, you are a slimy dude, man. So let me hear your thoughts about that. Start with Bracey. I'll tell you, boy. Um, <laughs> I'm so glad like uh, a lot of this stuff uh, wasn't preemptively shown. I love this this heel turn, especially when you start thinking he might be an okay guy. The way he uh, he stopped Thorman uh, when uh, when the fight in the reactor is going poorly, mm-hmm. and he's like, "No, no, she's in charge now. You you had your chance. You you blew it, buddy." Mm-hmm. And you think, "Oh, okay, man. Okay, we got the th- the two civilians are together. You know, they like they got a little bonding moment here. He's 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 going to be an okay guy, even though he's corporate." And then to have that heel turn which is compounded so much by the release of the face huggers because i tell you uh paul riser who is a comedian plays this so damn well uh this isn't the kind of role he ever does right uh but he when 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 he's exposed he is so inhumanly slimy and you hear it in his delivery that he thinks like well you know this is okay you know like yeah, it's it. It kind of reminded me of that that Hillary Clinton moment when they're, they're talking about the dead soldiers in Benghazi. He's like, at this point, what does it matter anymore? It, it's dead. It's over. It's done. One hundred and fifty some odd colonists are dead. You know, like, hey, you know, but we can still come out pretty nice on this if you work with me. And that's not enough because for him, that's an abstract. That was, you know, millions and millions and millions of space miles away. You know that he he sent these people to the deaths. But the the depths of his depravity are really shown in the fact that he is, I hate to say it, but ballsy enough to pull the trigger on setting those things loose on people that he has interacted with face-to-face, including a child. <laughs> so, you know. I don't know, know. I call that ballsy. That's just a little bit more slimy to me. But. I mean, like, but I'm telling you, like, it's, it's ballsy in a bad guy way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's there's a lot of people who do some evil stuff online, for instance. Uh, they will cancel people. Uh, they will ruin their lives. Uh, they will uh, they will harass them to the point of suicide, uh, loss of career, loss of the ability to make money. But you put them in the same room with that person, and they won't say a word because they're cowards on the inside. Burke stab somebody in the back that he has been working with and fighting with and face-to-face with, including a child. Face-to-face with a child. I was like, oh my god, dude. There is nothing redeeming about your character anymore. Nothing. And, and the way Riser handles it, you know, and you're like, I love that line that gets thrown back at him where he's, he's talking about like, you know, a bunch of these jarheads over there. He looks at Hicks. He's like, yeah, no offense. And and like Hicks is just looking at at Sigourney. He's like, "Yeah, what do you want to do?" I was like, "Oh, we kill him." He's like, he just snatches him up. Like, no offense, you know, I'm about to end you if something else hadn't happened right then. And it was so well deserved. And thankfully, uh, the payoff for what ultimately happens to him is even better because uh, justice is served. You know, he he gets as good as he gave. But wow, that is like one of the most horrifically villainous movie, moments I've ever seen in any film. That this guy has, is, is so soullessly greedy that he is willing to sacrifice a child that he has interacted with as long as he can do it in a way that doesn't actually get his hands dirty. Woo. The line oh. is, the line is, 
look, this is a multi-million dollar facility. He can't make that kind of decision. He's just a grunt. Uh, yeah. No offense. No offense. It's none taken. <laughs> um, uh, before I throw it to Steve, uh, it's the level of justification that just wows me because we see it on Twitter every day. It doesn't matter what side of an issue you're on. There are always people that's, that say, but can't you see it's this way? Can't you see this? Can't you see that? And they're adamant about it. And like you said, Burke is unapologetic. He's like, you know, can't you see the opportunity here? What's the lives of a few colonists? What's the lives of a few soldiers? We can cash out. We'll be set up. He's like, can't you see? He's doing this. He's doing the. Can't it's you all. See? It's all numbers on a spreadsheet to him. Right. Right. You know that kind of thing. And I. I oh. So I really like Ripley's response. Go ahead, Steve. Uh, the whole betrayal, Ripley's response, you know, setting them up later. What'd you think about all that? I did not trust Burke from day one. I did not have <laughs> any trust in him at all. And I will give you a couple of reasons why. And it was mainly because I saw the original Alien, like not before, uh, long before I saw Aliens. And we knew at that point that Whalen yutani could not be trusted, that they were corrupt that they were willing to send people to be killed. And the fact that Burke is associated with them and is a member of them automatically is like, I do not trust you because I know who you work for and you willingly work for them. And I don't, and, and I, and if you are in any way involved in this, I am going to be on the lookout. The other reason is he was too slick. Every, he always had an explanation for everything. He was always smooth talking his way into uh, Ripley's confidence all these kinds of things. He never seemed to be genuine at all. Like everything that we saw was an act. I mean, he always tries to seem like a nice guy. And I will say they perfectly cast Paul Reiser for this because mm -hmm. we mainly, we mainly know him from sitcoms. I think mad about you and things like this. Um, I think he was in Beverly Hills cop thing. You know, the, you know, so he's, so juxtaposing that with somebody who was a villain, I thought was great. But the thing of it is, is that with Burke, I honestly, the guy's a sociopath. There's no getting around it. This man is a total sociopath. And what are sociopaths known for? They're known for being charming. They're known for being manipulative. They're known for having no empathy. And we know that he hits six every single box, um, you know, risk-taking. You know, he has no, no concern whatsoever for the lives of these people in the colony. He doesn't care about them. We see that early on. Um, you know, with, uh, you know, when he's talking about it with Ripley, like, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, those colonists, yeah, I don't really care. He doesn't care about any of these people. He doesn't care about Ripley except that she's useful to him. Uh, so, yeah, I, I never trusted him at all. The other interesting thing I will say is they build up the, the mystery well reasonably. So if you're not looking necessarily looking for him being a sociopath, and and and, and I usually do because I'm because sociopaths are, are things that I, I kind of know up and close, um, is that uh, they really tried to play him against Bishop, because we knew from the first movie that Ash uh, was the one who was working for Will and Utani, and that Ash's you know was the android that was doing their work, dirty work. So I think what Cameron was doing was getting, priming us to suspect that Bishop was in the same role as Ash. And uh, Ripley is inclined to think that way at first as well, which is why she doesn't trust him. And her PTSD kind of reinforces this. Uh, so the idea seemed to be like, okay, if we divert everybody to Bishop, then they're not going to see uh, what a slime ball and what a sociopath and what a despicable piece of garbage that Burke is. 
Um, but no, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, Burke was too slimy for me ever to believe anything that he ever said. And it just seems, so when he, it comes that he tries to kill Newt and, and, uh, and Ripley, I'm like, yeah, I pretty much expected that. <laughs> he was obviously the guy, the mole-free whale in Utani. He was very obviously the guy that was doing their dirty work. I mean, especially when all he talks about is, like, you know, oh, uh, I'm only concerned about, like, all the money that this thing, this operation is worth, and, oh, we can't go and, and do all that. Um, and I also knew that he was lying to, directly to Ripley's face when it's like, oh, yeah, we, we're going to go to destroy them. No, you were never about to destroy them. And, and what a sociopath is, is he, by the way, that he tells her this after just having been woken up by her call. Most people are not going to think, you know, that clearly ever just having woken up and he sounds like he just woke up. And so the mm. fact that he could make he could lie straight to her face having done this, I mean, what a sociopathic piece of garbage. And and <laughs> and so yeah, so am I surprised that he's willing to send these two people to to his desk after having worked with them alongside them? No, he's willing to use anybody. He doesn't care. He has no regard for anybody but himself and how much money he stands to make from this operation. And, and, um, and we see it over and over and over again. And when he finally betrays them to their, to their deaths to the aliens, I'm like, yeah, I saw that coming. They should have just shot him right there. I, I would have been fine with Hicks or Hudson shooting him in the face after they caught him. After, after that, I think he deserved that. Uh, or feeding him to the aliens. I would not have had a problem with that either. Uh, so when he finally is fed to the aliens and, and he and is finally caught by them, I'm like, good. This guy just get, earns every single bit of it. This guy is a consummate villain from, from day one. And, um, and and so, yeah, he gets what he deserves, and we love it. Well, it's like you said, it's a masterstroke to cast somebody yeah, who's yeah. so likable in that role. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You yeah, need somebody yeah. like that to sell it. When you said charming, manipulative, and no empathy, I got an image of Billy Batson in front of the wizard with the acronym Shazam. <laughs> he just says a magic word, send it, and becomes a sociopath. Uh, go ahead, Nemesis, what do you think about Bert? <laughs> Steve hit it right on the head. It's exactly what I was going to say. He's a sociopath, and I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I don't want anybody to think that I'm, I'm denouncing capitalism here, but interestingly, most successful, very successful business leaders and politicians fall somewhere on the sociopathic spectrum. Oh, yeah. And very they love power and they love money. Yep. So uh, that said, um, there's also a reason that greed is one of the seven deadly sins, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I think that is very much on display here. Um, I, you know, like, and I, I just can't agree with Steve enough on the sociopath thing. And there's not much I can add. The only thing that I would add is that I absolutely agree with them when I think the greatest things here is Hicks' reaction. Uh, that is exactly what I would do. Uh, hell, I would, you know, the only reason that he's not dead, I think, is because Ripley is like, no, we got to take him back. And then I think Hicks still is going to kill him. I'd do the same thing. And I'd be like, all of you, turn your back. We're, we're putting two in this guy's head and we're marching on, you know. That's exactly what I would do. It's like, uh, yeah, I, w I wouldn't even think about it. And I don't know, maybe anybody would react that way, but that's definitely the way the soldier reacts. If somebody that's selling out people, they'd be like. No, Screw. yeah, no, he wouldn't have made it past the little red one. No. Okay, yeah. a few more topics and we'll wrap up. Uh, very last topic, we obviously have to talk about the biggest reveal in the movie, and that's the queen. 
they set her up so perfectly. And then when you watch the DVD extras, you see Cameron, uh, the sketches about how he wanted an alien, but he wanted something with a more feminine and sleek shape. And then how they came up with the crown and then how they built the mock-ups, which were like black trash bags and how yeah. they worked out all the mayor and stuff. And it's, again, it's brilliant. And Stan Winston, when he does his voiceovers, he's like, everything's in the shot. Everything that we're using to control the, the queen is actually in the shot. So it, she's one of the best revealed screen villains. And like Cameron says, you know what she is when you see her because that scene has no dialogue. Mm -hmm. But you understand when you see the little eggs spooping out and then they slowly pan up on the tube and then the camera pans back and you see, holy cow, this is literally the mother of the monsters. This is the mama of all monsters. And, I, and Ripley was like, and it's like, you didn't see that coming. And so I, once again, it's just brilliant. The, the juxtaposition of two mothers fighting for the children, the idea of the conversation they had earlier about saying uh, each one of the face huggers comes from an egg. So who's laying these eggs? The bishop says, I don't know. It must be something we haven't seen yet. And that was an ominous foreshadowing. And then, you know, then when we finally get the payoff, and so note to writers, that's how you set up and pay off. That's how you bookend uh, uh, a reveal. You set it up, you tease it, you whet the audience's appetite forward, you make the characters themselves kind of unsure what's going on. So it leaves that open hook in your mind and their mind too. So when we see it, there's no need, you don't have to explain what it is. You know what it is as soon as you see her and you're like, holy cow, how is Ripley going to get out of this? How would anybody get out of that? You know, that kind of thing. So she's one, uh, again, one of my favorite on-screen villains. And there's a deeper issue here, and you can talk about it in your comments if you want. The deeper issue with the queen alien is the same issue with the Borg. Is she evil? And that question is most likely no. She's a living thing trying to survive. The question is humans and aliens can't survive in the same space. And that's not the same as evil. You can make a better argument for the Borg being evil. Uh, but the queen alien is just like Galactus. Is he evil? Or is he just trying to survive? So that's another layer of this particular villain that I thought was brilliant. Because is she evil? Or is she just trying to do what living things do? But, you know, humans and aliens can't coexist. So I thought that conflict was brilliant as well. And then... Uh, uh, Sigourney Weaver personally has an aversion to guns. So she said she was freaking out on the gun scene. So she's really a strong actress because she sells Ripley because she herself was like, oh, I'm shooting all these extras and all that. And I love, 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 love when once we see her, we see the drones coming in on the side, like the way Raptors hunt, they flank you. And that's one thing I never understood why they didn't get about the aliens because the aliens and the raptors, they all do the same thing. They distract you here and they flank you here and here. So while you're transfixed by what's in front of you, you can't see them, here they come here. And so they did that in that scene, which I thought was great because they were like two seconds off of Ripley. And then the queen waves them off because Ripley says, I'm about to flame throw, I'm about to hardball these eggs up in here. How about that? And then the queen is like, okay, okay, I get it. Back off, Judson. Back off, Jason. And they're like, all right, all right. 
But then the egg opens and Ripley's like, you gotta be kidding me. It's just great. There's no dialogue. And it's great. It's great. It's great. I love it. So tell me your thoughts about the queen and kind of like your action the first time you saw her and then some of the levels and layers that are going on. Uh, start with Steve. Yeah, I was really impressed with the alien queen and, and the way they set it up. I, I like the idea. I mean, the the idea really kind of flowed from a natural logical question that I'm sure the writers asked themselves. And they're like, okay, yeah, where did the eggs come from? It's like, yeah, obviously there was a queen in the show it to you and they build it up gradually they don't just throw her out there they, they make you go down there into these tunnels uh to to go get to go see this thing and then when you see it it's like oh my god how is it ripley going to get out of this mm -hmm. i mean the tension is ratcheting to a fever pitch by this point this yeah. is a confrontation that they build to and it's and, and it's really really great uh so yeah i i, I really love the, the character and, and I love uh, her, uh, honestly, on a character level, because she is the foil of Ripley. She is Ripley's dark mirror. Um, she is basically doing the same thing for the same reasons. I'm protecting my kids, you know, yeah. and that's a great, great motivation. And, it, and, and it's like, okay, yeah, they're going out and killing all these people. But it's like, yeah, I'm protecting my children from these people that are coming out and murdering my kids. They're going out and they're taking flamethrowers to my children. <laughs> yeah, I, we're going to kill them. You know, so so they have absolute, you know, they don't think by our standards, um, obviously. I, I, I don't think I would consider them evil in the conventional sense. I would say they're more a force of nature, uh, mm -hmm. kind of like a, a Galactus would be or, or, or something like that. Yeah, he's, it's definitely a threat to humans. Um, it's definitely, you know, something that is that is bad when you see it, and it's scary and all these things. But in the end, their motivations are the same as Ripley's. I mean, you know, she's just providing for her children. You know, she's trying to make sure that they grow up and that they ra they're raised safely and that they can be independent. And, and you know, she's concerned for her kids. Yeah, she doesn't want her, her, her eggs to be... Uh, barbecued by ripley you know and, and 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 then when her kids are killed by ripley you know she goes and, and tries to maul her and just and kill her and it's like isn't that how a mother would react when you find that that your that your children have been murdered i'm going to go and kill this woman you know she murdered my babies i'm going to murder her you know and yeah. that's all she so her motivation at that point is less the survival of her children and it becomes revenge against the murder of her kids I mean, that's an understandable motive, human motivation as well. It's just that, you know, this is an alien who thinks in alien terms. But in the end, you know, it's just uh, it's basically Ripley, on the, but on the other side. So um, I, I think that that's brilliant. So, yeah, this is a, a, a case where it's just a clash of agendas, you know, of understandable motivations between, you know, two very different factions. And one of them has to win. You know, they, they cannot coexist. I mean, we definitely have seen that. So, yeah, I think this character was brilliant. I absolutely loved her. And I thought that she was absolutely perfect in this movie and the perfect villain for this movie. Um, you know, I I had, you know, nothing more really to add to that. And her level of intelligence. Yeah. Her level of intelligence is clear and operating the elevator and making a dramatic entrance and all the stuff she did. Yeah. She's awesome. Go ahead, Nemesis, Alien Queen. Um, yeah, just real quick. Uh, the first time I saw the movie, uh, like I said, I was in high school, and I remember this, and I remember all of our reactions because they're like, my parents took uh, like eight or nine of us, so it was eight or nine 
teenage kids, you know, teenage guys watching this movie and we're trying to pretend we're not scared. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when we saw that, all of us were like, oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and the first thing that got us was all of the eggs. And then the, 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 the action of her laying the egg and it coming out, we're just like, oh, no. No, no, come on, you know, and it was it was a good come on, but it was like, oh, no, you got to be kidding me. So I think that was my reaction. Um, So I say all that to get to uh, what I really wanted to talk about was with the question you had, which was about evil. I think it's interesting because this movie and I'm probably putting way too much on this movie, but I've thought about this a lot. I think there are two different types of evil. There's objective evil where everybody, no matter who you are, you're going to say, yeah, that's evil. The aliens, if we could get in their brains, if they could see what Burke was doing, even they would be like, God, they'd be like, damn, that dude's evil. You know, it's like, you know, and then there's subjective evil, subjective evil, where depending on your point of view, something may or may not be evil. That's the Galactus. That's the villain here. But it's like, the thing is, if you're a neutral observer and looking at it from a thousand, you know, a thousand feet up, you could look at it and say, oh, yeah, that's fine and everything. I think the important thing to take away from stories like this where there's subjective evil is that if you have to pick a side and it's the stakes, like Steve was saying, where, you, you know, there is no resolution possible here. It's one or the other. Then the other side is subjectively evil for you. Whether or not they intend to be evil, the, it doesn't matter because the end results are for you are evil. So it's like if a wolf, if I'm out in the wilderness and I'm hurt and the wolf pack is coming at me, to my mind, they're evil at that point, even though they're just doing what nature tells them to do. But it's like, I think it's pretty evil that I'm going to get eaten. I don't want to get eaten, you know? So that's subjective evil. And I think this is a good illustration of those concepts in this movie. So. Cool. I, I want to add one thing, and that is, is that for me, from the aliens' point of view, this is their planet. The yeah. the invaders are the humans, yeah. you know, because the humans came along later. So maybe from her perspective, like this is my planet, you know, yeah, I'm going to make food of you because you are rare, you are not wanted, nobody invited you. This is our place, you know, and uh, we're just going to make you our make you our host. That's it. That's why so often, and 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 we talked a little about this before we came on. In history and everything else, people make these blanket statements about saying this was right, this was wrong. And it's like it's more complicated than that. And depending on what point of view you have, yeah. right and wrong can be fluid, you know. And, yeah. and that sounds like a cop out. Yeah, there are instances where it's very clearly wrong. You know, it's like you look at Nazi Germany and you're like, yeah, I, I don't see an instance where I'm I'm defending that. <laughs> but you know, those are rare instances in life. Period. You know, not just history, just in life, you know, so. Well, two responses to that. Good is a point of view, Anakin. And Mm -hmm. you don't see them messing each other over for a percentage. Go ahead, Bracey. (laughs) Alien Queen. I'm going to start with um, the alien species itself here. Uh, Looking into what Ridley Scott has done with uh, Covenant Prometheus, uh, which I find incredibly fascinating even though they're uh flawed uh films uh in their own right i i still find them incredibly fascinating uh the development of the alien species and the of course the uh the character of david so tying this back to the very first movie where ash is describing the creature to the doomed crew of nostromo 
He describes them as a perfect organism. Its structural perfection is only matched by its hostility. Uh If we take Prometheus and Covenant to be canon now, uh, David wanted to make the perfect creature, and given his disdain for humans, uh, apparently he decided uh, them being the most successful things on the planet Earth, what made for the perfect creature was the most hostile creature on the planet, not just the smartest and the most adaptable. So the, uh, the aliens are, we know, intelligent, highly adaptable, and very, very hostile. And they are driven by a biological imperative. Now, if they were, if their base essence by the engineers was made to be a biological weapon, or in fact, if that was David's intention, because the, the black goo seems to be a biological weapon, then they are serving their purpose. They are planet scourers. Uh, I think that was obviously not the intention here so much. We're still a little bit in the dark about the origins of the aliens in this film. Uh, And the surprising thing is, uh, and I really hate that I missed last week's podcast because uh, I really wanted to go into an analysis of how intelligent the... uh, the drone alien on the Stromo is I, there's many interesting clues, including uh, a scene that didn't get filmed, which would have really detailed uh, how intelligent the creature is, but it probably would have led to a no franchise beyond that point. But here with the queen scene, and like you said, David, this is uh, brilliant. Uh, th- this whole scene plays out with no dialogue because there's no communication that we can be aware of that we can show on screen between these uh, these two uh, hive mothers, if you will, between Ripley and the Queen. Uh, the Queen herself doesn't just show intelligence. She shows emotion. Um, she shows critical thinking. Uh, she shows distress. Uh, she shows caution. And ultimately, she shows anger uh, when Ripley goes ahead and fries her brood. Now, I was aware something like this was going to come on as soon as I heard the line, well, what's been laying these eggs? I immediately thought, like, okay, they're definitely going to go with an ant-like societal structure. There'll be a queen. We'll have all these drone workers. You know, it, it's very obvious if you understand a bit about uh, insect biology and that sort of thing. So I was on board with that. My own only question was, what form was it going to take? Uh, and the form is quite marvelous. You know from watching the behind-the-scenes uh, now, I think in the the lore, the alien queen is supposed to be somewhere between uh, 15 and 18 feet tall, depending on who's making the movie at the time. Uh, the actual animatronic itself was 12 feet tall. And, uh, you know, you can do a lot with angles to make that seem uh, a great deal larger. But it's it's so beautiful to see this horrific thing. But it's 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 beautiful at the same time. It's like looking at a deadly wasp. Uh, whereas the uh, the drones and the warriors kind of remind me of uh, scorpions in a way because they, they love to use those tails and all. But this this creature is so spindly, uh, so improbable. And I love the fact that they went really insectile with this, with these legs and limbs that don't look like they should be able to support such gigantic mass with this crazy giant head. You know, it, uh, you know only this huge tail is going to balance it out. Uh, but the whole waspish nature of it uh, and, and seeing it in motion, it's so fluid. When I go back and 
watch uh, AVP, which has a, a CGI queen, which oddly, you know, they got CGI. They don't have to worry about proportion. Uh, is actually a lot more robust in figure than the queen from this film. And it just doesn't work. It's it's like a it's like an alien T Rex charging at you, whereas this you know this incredibly uh, uh, Jack skeleton like like build of this thing uh, lurching around in camera is so much more satisfying and in fact so much better in the action, even with the freedom that CGI allows. Uh, that it is a showpiece uh, villain and creature that will stand the test of time forever, as far as I'm concerned. The, um, uh, the, and, and like, like Nemesis, I had a very visceral reaction when you first get into the chamber. And I love the brilliant buildup. You're talking about like the, uh, the buildup for the reveal. Even the reveal is set in stages that are genius. You know, we go to the eggs and we, we slowly travel across and we finally, we get to the ovipositor and we see this thing just, just dropping organically dropping out these eggs. And if you ever watch like some nature shows, like it's not so gross when you see like an ant lay a whole bunch of eggs, but you know, if you've seen things like uh, sea turtles lay eggs, it, it's a little bit gross. You know, it's, 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 it's gross to watch animals get birthed. And this, this organic process of these eggs getting put down. And then it's like this, this uh, biomechanical conveyor, this factory of these eggs getting laid. And it, it's so goopy and so, so alien and natural at the same time that you can't help but have this gut reaction. And then finally we pan out and we start to see the creature itself. And even that's not enough. Cameron's got one last ace in the hole for us as Ripley is sitting there, like taking it all in the horror and the majesty of it all. The face extrudes down from underneath the shell of the crest and the aliens, uh, I always love Giger's design, the, the really getting to the biomechanical nature of them, that they've got tubes and pipes as well as he, he built a real skull and spines in this thing. But he gave them metal teeth and claws to show that they are inorganic and organic. And what does she have for teeth? She has these long, needle-like, translucent teeth, like she's an abyssal fish, which are some of the most alien-looking creatures on our planet. And it's it's just a genius of design on the part of uh, Stan Winston and and the crew, and it's so completely, perfectly conceptualized that it's like a it's just one of the best villain reveals, and one of the best villain possibles. Because like you said, we've got all this going on, we've got this inhuman monster, who has its own purpose, its own viewpoint, and you can't deny it. But survival means that as a human. We must. That's right. That's right. Okay. Two more uh, topics will be done. I know we went long tonight, but this movie is dense. Uh, spoiler alert. I don't like Prometheus and Covenant. So <laughs> we have a lot to talk about when we get there. Because I don't like the movies like at all. Okay. So, <laughs> okay, so what we're going to do now, we're going to talk about two more things. The next thing we're going to talk about is favorite characters. And we're going to talk about the ending. So favorite characters, uh, besides Ripley, who's my absolute favorite character, I would have to say my next favorite character is Hudson. Mm -hmm. The reason I like Hudson is because he gets real, real, real fast. And I like it even though it's it's cowardice and it's nervousness and 
before he's all this bluster and bravado and all this yang and all this this right here, all this jaw jacking. And then all of a sudden he's like, what are we talking about this for? Let's get out of here. I like the fact that that he just got really real. I always respect that when I see that in the character in this situation because they get what situation they're in. Because most of the people around them don't get it. Newt got it and Hudson got it. Everybody else is trying to figure. And they're like, no, there's no figuring, you know. But so just, and he has the best lines, the funniest lines. Well, they all have funny lines. Like, you know, Frost is like, you know, I guess you don't like the cornbread either. That was great. But all of Hudson's lines are so memorable coming from the great Bill Paxson, game over, man, game over, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, those things are going to kind of come here like they did before and they're going to get us and we're not going to last 17 hours and on and on and on. And I have to keep telling him to calm down because he's completely freaking out. He's like, man, I was getting short. Man, two more weeks and now, I'm going to buy it on this rock. He's so funny. Great. Mm-hmm. So I just like him because he got real really fast. I always liked that when I see it, even though this was behind false bravado and cowardice because he was a soldier. He is like, yeah, no, <laughs> it's time to bounce. I love that. So uh, I guess besides Ripley, give me your favorite character. Start with Nemesis. Uh, mine is also Hudson, but you already hit Hudson and, uh, I'll only add one other line. Uh, one of the favorite lines is when he goes, uh, why don't you put her in charge? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, after, after her, uh, after him, I, I think my, uh, next favorite character is Vasquez. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love her. I love how, um, confident and secure in her own skin she is in a man's world a decidedly man's world there and it there's no greater you know you talk about this movie being quotable this is hudson again but it's with vasquez there's no greater line that that really says who vasquez is than when uh hudson goes up to her and goes <laughs> hey vasquez has anybody ever mistaken you for a man because she goes no have you, you know, have you ever been mistaken for a man? She's like, no, have you? I was like, that is a badass right there. <laughs> right there. So I love that line. I love those two characters interacting there. Yeah. That after Hudson, that that's my second favorite character in the movie. So hey Vasquez, you ever been mistaken for a man? No. Have you? <laughs> have you? <laughs> oh, too bad. And you know what? You know what's great about that line? Uh, being soldiers, nemesis will know. You're constantly giving each other guff like that. Oh, oh hell yeah. Yeah. No. Hell yeah. It, it was great. It was great. Go ahead, Bracey. Favorite character, probably besides Ripley. Oh, man. I tell you, because this film is full of great characters. Yes. Uh, just full of great characters. Uh, I really lean hard towards Hudson. Uh, because, like you said, he gets real. He gets real fast. And the thing I like best about him is, like, even though he was, like, full of bluster, he was a full-on soldier you know he'd been serving with this unit for years and in mm-hmm. the end he proved himself he stood by his brothers when it got real uh even though like you know it it cost him in the end but that's what soldiers do you know uh you're trained that uh you know if one of you fails all of you fails for a reason because if one of you fails it can lead to everybody dying and so i like the fact that even though you know he was wigging out with just a little bit of encouragement he would swing back around enough to keep his head in the game. Uh, but like you said, he's got all the best lines. Uh, 
and he dies really hard. He and he dies, dies hard, really, man. He, he's like, come really on, get hard. some. You know, he's he's all about it. Bring it on. Oh, he's, yeah. he's, I'm tired of you bugs, you know. And once man, again, I, they're, I, they're doing this. They're doing this thing. They're coming at mm -hmm. you this way, but they're mm -hmm. here. When I hear him say, get some, and he's doing yeah. that, it takes me right back to being there, man. It's like, get some. Get some. But I think Where's for the, me, uh, I think for me, my favorite character is actually Bishop. Uh, after the uh, really surprising reveal of Ash in the first movie, of course, you're set up to wonder about what's going to happen with Bishop. Mm -hmm. And I've been a fan of Lance Henriksen for a long time uh, anyway. And uh, I can't remember if this was the first thing I saw him in or not. Mm, not 100% sure, but... Uh, there's something definitely about him as an actor. He's very magnetic. Uh, and here he plays he plays a very low-key. He's very understated, uh, which is precisely what he should have been, uh, you know, uh, if, especially if uh, if you want him to be a covert android, you know, like you want to do everything not to stand out. But I like the fact that, uh, that even this Tin Man... Um, after seeing how horrible Bert could be, that this guy has more soul. This artificial man has more soul than Burke, and even is a hero in his own right in the end. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I like that. I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. Maybe synthetic, but he's not stupid. Go mm -hmm. ahead, Steve. Favorite character? Yeah, I, I think uh, you guys have already talked about like some of my favorites already. Uh, Vasquez was really great. Um, I mean, obviously uh, Hudson is a great uh, conflict character. Um, he's just a lot of fun, and, and, and the whole banner that they all have. I mean, it's just yeah, well, the experiences that I've had with people who've been in the military have been with people like Hudson. So I completely, <laughs> I completely get it. There are a lot of Hudsons that that are in the service, and you know we do kind of need them sometimes. But um, one character <laughs> I really love that we haven't really talked about is Hicks, um, and I really liked him. And one of the reasons I really liked him is he has an arc. Like he mm -hmm. comes across, and he starts off. He's very low key. He's not somebody that. You know, particularly uh, anybody really notices. He even sleeps at one point uh, when he probably should be awake, which I find interesting. But the minute the crisis hits, Hicks is in the front of it, and he's acting like a, an officer and a leader. You know, yeah. the minute that that opponent guys, you know, he's like, "Okay, I, I'm going to get us out of there. I'm going to be the guy because I'm the guy now." And he absolutely delivers. And I would say he's every bit Ripley's equal. And I really, honestly, I ship him and Ripley. I, I really think that he and Ripley, you know, should have been a couple. You know, I would like, I would, I just kind of in my in my head canon, there is a timeline where he and Ripley are married and they've adopted Newt and they're living a happy life back on Earth. <laughs> you know, I just see that. I mean, you know, I just, they are a family at that point. Um, you know, he adopts Newt. You know, you can definitely tell he she allows him to pick her up. And you can, you know, it's it's nothing that's ever noticed, but you definitely notice that there. I mean, he becomes more of a man. And, and I will say, uh, one of the things that I really love about this movie is how various characters are shaped by crisis, and they're either forged into uh, sharp uh, steel, you know, or they crack. And 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 uh, Hicks was one of those characters who grew, and he became, and he definitely handled himself in a crisis, and I love that. Um, I loved Upon in the short time we had him. Uh, you know, he's such a believable drill sergeant because he was one, and you can definitely see that in there, and he was just a fun character, and plus, you know, I just like seeing, like, a, a believable uh, black hero, you know, that you definitely respect, and you respect Pone in the time that you get him, and, and, and it's like, those are the kinds of characters that we want to see, 
uh, more of. And, and, you know, especially since this was a guy who actually did, you know, accomplish things, you know, before uh, off of camera before he was ever there. So, yeah, I really did like him. They're not marrying bad characters. And I will say, even Burke, uh, as much as he's loathsome, he's a great <laughs> character because he's such a great villain. You love to hate this guy and, and, and all of this. So, you know, there are not many characters that I would say are bad characters in this movie. I mean, I think anybody could pick any, almost any of them, except maybe Gorman. <laughs> Gorman hey, even Gorman, even Gorman gets to go out like a man. Yeah, he went, he went out with a blaze of glory. I will say that, yeah. Uh, he got a good ending. I will, I will give him that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I can't think of too many bad characters in this. I think you could make a case for just about any of them, really, and at least of the ones that we got a chance to know. Um, yeah. And say that they're, you know, that you're, they're your favorites, you know. Okay, now. Uh, I, will say, oh, I, was say, I will say this. Funny military side about with Hicks. You can tell a military person because I could fall asleep anywhere. Yes. Anywhere, anytime. Uh, I, yeah, I'll just put it at that. You, sleep you, is precious. You get it when you can. Yeah. Uh, uh, now, note to writers out there with my writer's coat hat on. Uh, that's how you know you've written a great piece when none of the characters are extraneous. And even the ones that die early are not red shirts because mm -hmm. the medical officer dies and even ones we don't get to know Pharaoh, the pilot, and Spunkmeyer, we still care about them because they cared about each other. And that comes through in the screen. Uh, and that's really what you want to do. One. Two, Carrie Hinn did not have any acting experience. We were talking before about how she sold Newt. They picked Carrie Hinn because she was the only kid that didn't smile after her lines. So all <laughs> other child actors had Hollywood training. So they were like, you know, they mostly come at night, mostly, -da! and they were like that. And Carrie's the only one that didn't do that. And Gail Ann Hurd said that's why they picked her, huh. uh, because she was the most real, because she didn't have any acting training, which I thought was really, really something. Because, you know, if you're going to do that Hollywood thing, you've got to smile. you got to do that, because you're doing serial commercials when you're three. And yeah. it was that lack of training in her life that got her the part, which I thought was fascinating. OK, final subject. I know we've gone long, but this movie is thick. Final subject, and here it is, and that is the ending. That's the mother of all endings. Oh, my goodness, that ending. Now, that ending has the biggest scientifically impossible scene I think I've ever seen, but I don't care, which is rare. That's what lets me know when a movie is good. Normally, scenes like that push me out of a movie, and I just put my hands up and I disconnect. In this movie, we were cheering. We were screaming at the top of our lungs. I'm like, yeah, Ripley. I mean, it was just unbelievable. So for those of you that haven't seen it, which I can't believe you haven't seen Aliens, Come on. But anyway, so what happens is they have the um, power loader fight. And Sigourney Weaver is actually, there's a man behind her actually operating that thing. He's hidden very well, so you can't see. There's two people in that thing. So she's having a one-on-one. -on -one. Cameron also brilliantly cuts back and forth between real action and scale. You can see it when you examine it. Mm. But there are definitely some smaller scale models that are fighting. And they go back and forth between Rippling and the animatronic puppet. Once again, brilliant use of camera work, brilliant use of quick cuts, and you know it doesn't jump out. So Ripley falls into the. Uh, she's opening the space hatch because she's planning to blow the queen out. Somehow the queen gets that, grabs Ripley <coughs> on the way out, and pulls her down into the thing. So Ripley's on the ladder, and the queen's at the bottom. I, I can buy all that, although that fall should have broken every bone in Ripley's body. 
okay, she's following that power order. She should have, the bones should have been broken. But I'm like, okay, I'll give you that one. So she's climbing back up. And then the queen re reaches up and grabs her ankle. She should have tore her leg out of the socket. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm like, okay, I'll give you that one. And then I'm like, so I'm thinking, I'm like, she's not going to do it. She's not going to do it. No way she could do it. She couldn't survive. She's not going to do it. And then she does it. <laughs> she punches the code and opens the space door. And everybody was like, oh, my word. And then the vacuum of space. How do you beat the vacuum of space? And so the alien queen's hanging on and she's screaming and she's all ah and Ripley's and then Ripley does the elbow lock on the thing and we're like I, <laughs> we're stupid. <laughs> and so she's all on the thing, but wait, we're not done, we're not done. Then she climbs <laughs> against and, and the big crates is falling out and Bishop sliding across the floor and Newt sliding across the floor and that causes the vacuum of space and she just climbing and climbing and the score is going and it was oh my god that ending that ending was pulse pounding man was the greatest endings of all time because because even though everything that happens after she falls is impossible it's the final cherry on top of the this is a determined woman sunday so if you've ever seen a determination the the drive, the grit, the I'm not going to let this thing beat me. That's why it's so great. That's why we can let all the scientific inconsistency slide as far as I'm concerned, because Ripley was like, I'm winning. Like we talked about before, it's one or the other. Ripley was like, yeah, no, I, no, you ain't taking me out. And she climbs back up against the vacuum of space. She didn't even freeze. She should have froze. She didn't even freeze. <laughs> And she's coming up through the thing and she's climbing over and she rolls over and she hits the button and closes the doors and Bishop and News King was great. It was great. It was great. It was great. It was great. So, I, you know, one of the best endings of all time and one of the few times where all the physical impossibilities don't push me out of it. They somehow drew me in it. And that, that to me speaks to the brilliance of the writing, directing, and acting. Because it was great. It was great. And I will say this for our thought to you guys. I did not actually believe the movie was over when it was over. I mm. thought there was some more surprises coming because that, that ending, man, something's jumping off every few seconds. Something's happening, you know. And I thought we seem in hyper sleep, uh, hyper sleep chambers. I'm like, that's not it, is it? That's not it. There's something else going on, you know, which we find out to be true. But I'll get to that next week. But anyway, if you can't tell, I loved it. I loved every inch of it. I, I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. Loved it, loved it. I thought it was great. So give me your thoughts. Start with Bracey. Ah, well, yeah, there's uh, so many improbable things that happen there, but, like, you don't even think about it at the time so much. Yeah, although I did, I did remember thinking, like, there's no way she can climb out of there. There's <laughs> right. no way. Right. But I wasn't I wasn't even thinking of things like safety measures, like all this wind is rushing past when, you know, uh, spaceships are going to be built to do that. It's just like, you know, submarines. You're going to you're going to close off areas that are affected. So, like, you only had like so much air before all these uh, these these safety doors closed down. There's no air left in the hangar. Right. And right. then you've only got about 30 seconds of consciousness when you're exposed to the hard vacuum. Uh, point of fact. 
they they do the freezing thing mostly in films uh, because yeah, space is obviously quite cold. But when you're exposed to hard vacuum, we actually swell up. Uh, your tissues expand to about three times the size because we no longer have air pressure on us. And uh, surprisingly, when you pressurize people, they, they kind of go back to normal. I don't know how that works without killing somebody. And But I guess we're, uh, we're a little bit tougher than we sometimes think we are. <laughs> but yeah, that, that scene is, is, is so impactful and it's so gripping. And you so just want her to pull it out that you don't care about that. When a more <laughs> logical play was when the queen grabbed her, if it didn't snatch her leg off right away, and the fact that she opens up the entire hangar to space and, like, if, if Bishop wasn't there, there goes Newt. Bye! Sorry, I, I, I tried to save you. I guess I screwed up. Yeah. Uh, the the actual logical play, if you wanted to go, like, more of a hardcore horror movie as opposed to a sci-fi action horror, is she shuts the hangar above her, then opens the doors below her. And her and the queen go falling to the planet and it's up to Newton half bishop to uh, get back home somehow or you know set off the beacon but you get a half bishop you can have that uh, i remember peter benchley talking to steven spielberg uh, you know he was there on the set for jaws a lot and uh spielberg was going over how the ending of jaws was going to go which is also extremely impossible uh, if you th if you throw a, sh a tank in a shark's mouth it's just going to spit it out it's not going to swim around with this tank in its mouth for no reason. And, uh, you know, he swims out and it's, it's always sitting there in the mouth. He doesn't spit it out. He doesn't swallow it. And so, you know, eventually Chief Brody gets that shot. And uh, in the in the book, the shark just dies of all of its wounds accumulated in its battle with the uh, the sheriff and the shark hunter and, uh, and the marine biologist. Eventually the shark, Brody thinks he's going to die and he, he he's waiting to get eaten. And he looks up and he's, and he's in the water and the shark is just sinking. It's died before it could reach him. And, um, Peter Benchley is like, you know, Steven, what are you doing? Like this, this ending doesn't make sense. Nobody's going to believe this. And he turned to uh, Peter and he said, after the journey I have taken the audience on, they will buy anything I put in front of. Them. And that's what this movie does. Okay, okay. That's perfectly said, because that's exactly what happens. By the way, Steve, I meant to say, your original idea about family was actually what Cameron had in mind. That was the original plan. So mm -hmm. he frames them in several shops, Ripley, Hicks, and Newt, like mm -hmm. when he saves them in the lab from the facehuggers. So Cameron mm -hmm. did expect the next movie for them to do exactly what you said. So that wasn't accidental. That was set up during the movie, and they just threw that out. We'll talk about that next time. But anyway, so go ahead. Thoughts about the ending, Steve? Yeah, I will say that, yeah, it does seem like Hicks was always intentionally designed as a possible love interest, but I'll get mm -hmm. into that. Um, as, yeah, there was one point I was going to say, uh, DT, in response to your point about um, you expecting something more. I think the reason you probably were is because Alien uh, primed us to expect something else, because that's exactly <laughs> what they did at the end of the first movie. So it might have been that you were, you know, that part of that was kind of in the back of your mind. Uh, going through that, and I can totally understand why you thought that. Um, I don't think it did for me because I was sort of expecting them. Well, yeah, they're not going to pull that twice, uh, and indeed they didn't. So you know, credit to Cameron for that. Uh, yeah, I think you guys covered as far as the whole thing. I, I think one of the reasons why that the whole final scene works so well is because they've emotionally sold this conflict so well, 
and and you know we want Ripley to be the winner. We want her, you know, to to fight this horrible monster that you know is giving her chase, you know, all the way since the, to the bottom of the planet to the top of the planet. Um, so you know, we after this whole thing, we want Ripley to win, and so we're kind of expecting because it's so emotionally satisfying because we want Ripley to save Newt because we want this family to be together at the end. Um, you know, by that point, it's like, okay, do I really care that Ripley uh, went uh, all the way to the top of the thing to, to uh, close the hatch after she opened she opened the hatch like halfway down the stair? <laughs> and yeah. I sort because my whole question is like, okay, why do, if you if you open the hatch on on the ladder, why couldn't you close it? on the ladder instead of, you know, losing precious air going all the way up. You know, I had noticed that. And, but, you know, do I care? No, no, I don't no, because it, no. it's emotionally, it's satisfying. You know, we, we want to see this outcome. So do we care how we get there at this point? I'm like, no, not really because, you know, the villain goes out in a blaze of glory. Uh, the, the, you know, Ripley gets her win. you know, she gets her emotional uh, reunion with Newt. Uh, and Hicks and and all of that and you know everything comes together because and, and a lot of times you know just you know that that desire what you've emotionally primed the audience to and the feels of it you know some I think you've sometimes talked uh, DT about emotional writing and how emotional writing sometimes overcomes logic yeah um, I think this movie definitely does that um, yeah. and, and in this scene particularly in this scene. So we don't necessarily care that Ripley is not uh, closing her mouth to try to preserve air, and we don't care that she's opening the hatch at a different point where she's closing the hatch, and and you know, and all the things that we care about science and all that. No, we don't care about that. We just care about the hero uh, getting her win and having that emotional resolution with her newcomb family, and you know, going home and and you know, getting her win and getting her laurels, and that's what it comes down to. Well, it's like what Bracy said. The first thing that happens if there's no bishop is Newt is out of that hatch. Yeah. So everything she fought for is gone, you know. Right. But anyway, go ahead, Nemesis, ending. Yeah, the only thing I'm going to add, uh, just a couple uh, comments. Uh, one, after this ending and everything they've gone through, it's why I hate the next movie so much, especially the beginning. It was just a complete slap in the face. I felt like, I, I remember when I watched the movie in there, I was just like, I wanted to get up and just walk out. I was like, Terminator Dark Fate. Yeah. So, I will say, uh, knowing what happened in the last movie after I saw that, it's like, yeah, I don't even want to see it because that's complete nonsense. Yeah. People so, walked out of the movie theater in silence after the end of the 8 and 3. We were stunned. Yeah. Yeah. So, there's that. And then the only other thing I'm going to say, I'm going to be my usual snarky self. Uh, if you listen really closely, as Ripley has the, the, the very strong elbow lock on there, you could hear dun, da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> so. uh, yeah she definitely would have had to be superhuman to do all that but we bought it yeah we bought well, it no, and... it's, that, it's that elbow lock you know it's that, that elbow gives you <laughs> the vacuum of space it's like i could i could buy her hanging on i couldn't buy her climbing out <laughs> yeah right no that wouldn't happen but like, also I, at the very end, in the literal end of the film, where they get to the end of the credits, you can hear a face hugger scrabbling. I don't know if you watched it to the end. Oh, I never caught that before. No, yeah, uh, all the way to the very, very end before the screen goes dark, you can hear a face hugger scrabbling across. 
That's oh. what I meant when I said I didn't think it was over. Oh man! Because they're, they're, yeah. you can hear it. You can hear it. So just go watch it. You I think it. that was probably a tease for Alien Three, at least uh, as Cameron envisioned it. I, you know, we'll talk about that next week. You know, because that, you know, that and Kirshner not doing Return of the Jedi was probably two of my biggest '80s heartbreak heartbreaks. Mm-hmm. Cameron not coming back for Alien Three, and Kirshner not following up Empire with him doing Jedi. And uh, maybe Uh-oh. I'll throw Donner and Lester Superman in there too. But um, if ever there's been a movie that set up the sequel, that kind of kind of handed you, you know, gave you the biggest alley you possible about where to go next with the story and all that, and then just. But anyway, we'll get to that next week. So, uh, so let's wrap this up because this one's definitely been long, but it's been fun because there's so much to say. So in conclusion, I have to say to all our listeners, everybody checking out the video, listening to the podcast, we obviously all love this film. This film works on every possible level and even its flaws we're willing to forget and overlook because it's so well done and because this is an example about how, and listen to me carefully, about how to earn an over-the-top moment. That's the sign of great writing, directing, and acting. When you have an over-the-top moment that doesn't have context or hasn't been earned, it makes the audience groan. It's cringe. We can't buy it. It pushes us out of the narrative because they haven't earned it. Okay? And one of the best examples of that is, of course, Anakin and Padme falling in love. They fell in love because the script required them to not because anything actually happened that would produce a deeper love. Because anybody that's ever fallen in love knows what that feeling is like. And that ain't what they did. And so if you want to have something that's just extreme and over the top, this movie is how you earn it. How you earn your protagonist doing something, doing a whole bunch of somethings that could not possibly happen. But you buy it, you cheer you root for it, you accept it, you know, you wouldn't have had it any other way because they earned that moment. That's what this looks like. So I give it two thumbs up. I give it two double A pluses. I give it a 10 and a half out of 10. I'm willing to forgive all the imperfections. It's, it's just great. It's just a masterpiece, masterpiece of movie making. And so highly recommend it. If somehow you haven't seen it, you should go check it out. So that's it for this. Uh, episode again we went long but again this movie is great very very dense so i want to thank my co-host thank you so much dave no problem uh yeah i love this movie too it's a it's a foundational sci-fi movie it is a foundational geek movie it is one you have to watch that's right it's on a must watch list thank you so much steve yeah, th- uh, thank you. This was really an enjoyable one to talk about, uh, especially kind of looking back on it recently. But uh, I will just say uh, for now, uh, game over. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Jeff. A pleasure. And uh, if you guys out there haven't seen it, this is uh, Cameron starting at the peak of his powers. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. That's absolutely right. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to check out the other podcasts and videos we have on the United Capes Podcast Network, and then also on the Comic Crusaders YouTube channel. Check out videos there. We have lots of other shows, so definitely check them out. And we will see you next time, next week, because next time we're going to talk about the biggest disappointment until we got to Phantom Menace, which was Alien 3. 
So we'll see you next time on the next episode of Sloppy Spoilers. <laughs>